All right, class. I'm Mr. Roots, and due to the unfortunate circumstances of your previous teacher, this Lord Grandfather guy asked me to sub. I got three rules for my class, so sit down and listen up. Rule number one, shut your yap. Disclaimer, this episode may contain language in adult situations that aren't appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Rule number two, shut your yap. This episode also contains spoilers for the series Shadows House and possibly other anime and films. Keep this in mind as you listen. And rule number three. Oh yeah, you better bitch your ass. It's gonna be shut your yap. Finally, opinions expressed are those of the individual participants and may not reflect those of the Dub Talk podcast as a whole. Alright, so Mr. Roots tied one too many on last night and I'm gonna sneak some hair of the dog into my coffee cup while you kids watch a video. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Dub Talk House. I'm the living doll called Stephanie, and I'm currently here with our newest dolls, Megan, Amon, and Patrick. Mommy, is this how VTubers are made? Sweet child, I'm only a year older than you. I am not your mother. Mommy, I want to go home. I am still not your mother and you're not going home. May I have milkies? No. Okay. <laughs> Today, I guess that's the bit we're going with. Today is our first day of class on how to be the perfect living doll in order to serve our masters. And what better way to learn than by seeing it in action with our sister home, Shadow's House. The spring 2021 series based on the ongoing manga by Somato and produced by Cloverworks and director Kazuki Ohashi. If you are unfamiliar with the series, let me give you a quick summary. And I'm gonna just drop the bit at this point. So you're telling me this is how VTubers are made? Well, when a when a Twitch streamer and a 3D rig artist love each other very much. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Twitch streamer gives the artist a lot of money, and in return, you see where I'm going with this. And that's how babies are born. <laughs> So, Shadow's House, the Spring 2020, 2021 series, Cloverworks, manga, all this fun stuff, here's your summary. In a grandiose and dark mansion, the denizens of the Shadow's House live, attended by their living doll partners, who endlessly clean the soot their masters emit. Emiliko, a young and cheerful living doll, is delighted to start serving her mistress, Kate. As the two grow closer and are slowly exposed to various events within the house, they start to discover a number of dark secrets. Bum, bum, bum. It, it has a vibe and a tone of like gothic horror to an extent. That's very unsettling and I love it. But what if we took your gothic horror and placed one child of insurmountable joy who could never be defeated and could take out <laughs> Goku with her positivity? Well, to be honest, usually you do that to then crush the child later, so we'll see. She's already been through enough. She had to drink coffee at a young age. I've I've read these kind of books. That's what you think. Oh, coffee is a child? She is coffee ruined is already. A child. <laughs> I, I'm so glad that they made an evil prequel to Encanto. Anyways... As always, we're going to be discussing the series from top to bottom, including the casting, performances, and our overall thoughts on the English dub. Uh, I hope you have your cleaning kits ready, kids, because it's time to get to work. What's cleaning? Oh, God. I, I, this squad of mine, they have a lot to learn. Oh, no. 
Fuck you, I sweep all the time. Ah, <laughs> yeah, my master can fuck off for the time being. The Broncos are on. Alright, we need to get you more sit coffee and stat then. Um, hmm. Anyway, let's kick things off with our ADR staff. We have our ADR director, two assistant directors, two script writers, and... We do have some song adaptation happening in here. So we're also going to talk about our ADR song director and lyric adaptation for this show. So in terms of who our staff for this show is, first of all, this is a Funimation dub, even though the show is produced by Aniplex, I believe. No, Funimation got it directly outright from Aniplex in Japan. This is not shared with AOA. It's not shared with Aniplex. It's not Aniplex, period. That's Millionaire Detective I'm thinking of. No, this is produced by Aniplex and Cloverworks. They're just not sharing the license like they were with something like Millionaire Detective. No, that's what I was trying to say. It's an Aniplex-produced series, is what I was trying to say. I'm very confused. Megan needs caffeine, but not coffee, because coffee is the devil in this show. Well, we're well, we're all screwed, because I'm drinking coffee, so here we go. <laughs> if Steph starts acting weird within the next hour, uh, Andrew will need to be called in to flush your mouth out with water. Oh, so much water. So basically, if I'm drunk off of coffee, what you're telling me is I need to drink copious amounts of water. Yes, just flush it all out. That's how that works. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, our ADR staff. Um, starting with our ADR director, that would be the one and only Caitlin Glass, who has directed other series uh, such as Apare Ranman, Fruits Basket 2019, and Radiant. Our two assistant ADR directors, we have Sean Gan, who has also assisted on Apare Ranman, Horimiya, and Sakura Quest. And as a fun little side note, because this is this was made public by him, congrats on being a full-time director now at Funimation. Yay! Congrats to you. Excited to see what you do. As for our other a assistant ADR director, that would be Emmy Lowe. I believe this was her first go at ADR directing. Because the, the stuff following this include things such as Saints Magic Powers Omnipotent, uh, Ranking of Kings, and Season 2 of Restaurant to Another World. Scriptwriters. So, our two scriptwriters. Our main scriptwriter for the series is Jessica Cavanaugh, who has written for other series such as Golden Kamui, Rumble Keaton, Game of Law Place, and Smile Down the Runway. And as for the scriptwriter for episode one specifically, that would be Emily Neves, who has also written for series such as Copcraft, Kakarillo Ben Breakfast for Spirits, and Snow White with the Red Hair. And as for our ADR song director and lyric adaptation, it's actually the same person, we have Don M. Bennett, who has also served doing music director and also lyric adaptation for series such as Actor's Song Connection, Astra Lost in Space, and Sanan Zanmai. So... What are our thoughts on the directing, the writing? Um, one of the things that I was worried about was in this show, every other Shadow and their doll is played by the same actor. Yes. So I wondered if they would do the same thing because sometimes it doesn't work when actors play two characters that are deeply connected. It sometimes can blend all together if proper direction isn't given to make sure that they sound as if they have their own personalities and that's actually a huge plot point of the show mm -hmm. so the extra time and care that was put into caitlin sean and emily's direction i think they did a good job getting actors who could do that or at least directing actors who could differentiate themselves in that way 
in while normally I would be bothered by the same actor playing multiple characters, it really worked here because of the way that the show worked and that they took the care to do. Like a big example of me not liking this and actually preferring like one language track over another is in Blood Blockade Battlefront, Black, White, and the King of Despair are all played by the same actress. Oh yeah. And to me, that didn't really ever work because Black and White were two different characters and then Black and the King of Despair were two different characters, but those characters were sharing a body. So that's why it worked in English to have two different people perform those three characters with obviously the actor for Black taking care of the double duty for himself and the King of Despair. So here this works because I think Caitlin and the directing team played into that so well. I think that Dawn did a good job adapting the song. It's the one little song. It's the cleaning song. It's so cute. And I also want to appreciate that, like, everybody sung it competently, but it did still sound like maybe the dolls weren't all good singers in the first place. So, like, I think that that sounded pretty cool. And the writing I really compliment because this is obviously clearly taking place during some sort of time period. And there was never something that made this show feel like it was modern or super far back. I do enjoy that they kept the way that a lot of the shadows address themselves in the third person um, and made it sound like it flowed really well in natural dialogue because obviously Megan thinks that Megan is this can sound really awkward to people. So overall, I think it's a really good dub with a lot of, I think, fun performances that we're going to talk about. So overall, I, I genuinely enjoyed it. I don't know. This is really strong. I... I like the show because it does have a lot of gothic horror in it, uh, but it also feels very much like a fairy tale in the, like, like in the same way that, like, I'll watch stuff like Ancient Magus Bride or uh, the bits of, like, Girl from the Other Side I've read where there's a very, like, kind of sort of fairy tale folk story aspect to it. Like, I, fe I feel like I am reading something that is from an old country. It has, it has that feel to it, and I... It helps with like the character depictions and the performances as well. I think. Yeah, no, and I, I think I think the dub does a good job of capturing that aspect of it. It feels very, it feels very old world without feeling too specific. Like, you know, there's a vague Britishness about some of the performances, but I think that's just because you a lot of Americans. That's what that sounds like in English. You know, you know, you know. Well, well, we're making a movie set in ancient Rome in the '50s. Everyone's going to be played by British actors because that's what we think people from Rome sound like now. Uh, but I think I think it works in this case because it doesn't it doesn't feel like it, it never reads as like oh this is set in specific country it's just this feels old and otherworldly in a way that isn't too like removed but it's removed enough that like everything comes off as a little like even the, even aside from the stuff that's obviously weird and off putting it also feels like this is all a little strange I don't know if I appreciate these people being here can they be somewhere else where I don't feel like they're in mortal peril perhaps. Maybe. Can we burn down the other side of the house? Uh, my, ex my experience is burning down one part of the house usually leads to the whole thing burning down, so probably not. Control controlled fires are a thing you can do with forests, not houses. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with what Megan was saying. I think this is a nice... I think this is strongly directed and written. I think it's well cast. Uh, I'll further thoughts as we get to individual characters. So yeah, I think this is really strong on the whole. I liked it a lot. Yeah, one thing I really appreciate is... Um... Almond was kind of going into it a little bit, but um, it's kind of accent work, but not really. 
more of a very regal manner of speech. Like, it felt like kind of a Cape Cod kind of really sophisticated, like, New England-ish kind of. That is a very specific. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's like, um, like Herman Munster, if oh, you think yeah. about it. Or the Adams Family, maybe a little. Yeah, where he's clearly speaking in a very sophisticated tone, but is not taking on any particular regional ass accent, which, considering we don't know where Shadow's House actually takes place, helps out quite a bit. Like, one other thing I really kind of appreciate is that um, our main five, the Shadows and their living dolls, they legit sound like kids. And doubling them up, as we'll get to throughout the course of the uh, of the episode, like, they were distinct, uh, but also you could tell there was something going on that you later find out is, like, a not-so-savory thing that's going on. And also, particularly with the main characters sound like children, the song um, actually sounds like it is sung by kids. And particularly in the last episode, they do a really good job giving it a... Um, unsettling and menacing vibe like especially with Emilico everything is framed in a way in that last shot where you don't know where her true affiliations lie and I think that's going to be a really interesting thing coming into season two later this year so yeah direction script writing and the um the song which you know me I'm not particularly big on dubbed songs but it felt appropriate here but all of, it, all of it was really solidly done, so kudos and thumbs up. Hey, what else can I add at this stage? Um, I mean, Caitlin Glass has become a really big staple in terms of her directing work, so this is no exception to that. Um, and with the assistance of both Sean and Emmy, they add a fun cohesion and just... They have a lot of fun with the show, especially with, like... All of the um, the shadows and the masters and the living dolls who have one voice to them but have to play different personalities so they get to have fun playing with personalities. Especially with, I would say, Sean and John and Lou and Louise. Those are like drastically different personalities that are just so much fun to play with. So kudos on the direction on that. And the writing is really enjoyable too. I am going to give Emily a lot of kudos though for her script work in episode one. Because episode one primarily is what establishes a little bit of the world. But the main thing is that it establishes the relationship between Emilico and Kate. And how that is written and how that's directed I think came off very, very well in getting the viewer to kind of just like be curious about this world and be invested in this relationship between these two little girls um, and whatever weird ass dark secrets come their way. So I have to give Emily Neve some kudos for that one. There's not really much more I can add that everybody hasn't said already. So unless there's any additional little comments and stuff, do we want to move on to our first set of characters? Yeah. So why don't we kick things off? Um, with, uh, the quote-unquote cream of the crop. Uh, the assholes who think, uh, kidnapping kids is a good thing. Let's talk about the nobles on the third floor. <laughs> I mean, you say this like that's a surprise, but they have, you know, you describe them as nobles. So, like, really? Are we shocked? Are we? I mean, this is, like, basically, you know, the whole, like, mythology of, like, the fairy changeling thing. Like, they would take kids and exchange them with fairy babies. I've seen the ancient Magus Bride. You all know who my favorite character is in that show. So we have our four nobles. Plus, we're going to also talk about Lord Grandfather, who is the patriarch of the entire Shadow's house. 
He looks like a fucking Jojo stand. <laughs> kind of does! He looks like- he looks like the one that was of the big fat guy in the jail. Black Sabbath, Don Popo Stan, given life again. Oh my god. So we have Lord Grandfather, who is the Patriarch of Shadow's house, and everybody just wants to serve him and be loyal and all this fun shit, but we really don't know much about Lord Grandfather, really. We do know potentially a little bit more about our four nobles, who are also on the third floor with him. We have Dorothy, Ryan, Joseph, and Sophie. Which I could be- which I could probably describe as Dorothy the prim proper princess. Ryan the cocky sack of shit. Joseph the regal uncle? He's the big smoking guy. The big smoking guy. And Sophie who- Is an eldritch abomination! Is a butterfly. She's an eldritch abomination. She literally has a proboscis. She's a butterfly. Anyway, the individuals voicing these characters as Sophie, our wonderful little butterfly, uh, is Alex Moore, who's voiced characters such as Susan Okamazuki in The Devil is a Part-Timer, Lolette and Maria the Virgin Witch, and Mitsuba Songju in Seraph of the End. My girl. Your girl. As Joseph, we have Brent Mukai, who is still relatively new. The only other really, really major named character he's voiced at the stage is Genji in Full Dive, uh, but he's also, uh, he's also Dorshe in Ranking of Kings and Sho Minamoto in The World Ends With You. Uh, as Ryan, our sack of shit, <laughs> we have Jason Lebrecht, <laughs> whose voice characters such as Lilium in Aka 13 Territory Inspection Department, Haruitsuki Abano in the Morose Mononokian, and uh, Mutsunokami Yoshiyuka in Token Rambu Hanamaru, aka the guy with gun. <laughs> and as for Dorothy, we have a name that we actually don't hear really that often, Vanessa De Silvio whose only other major named character to date is Makoto Kirishima in Wanna Be the Strongest in the World. Um, but she has done background and smaller roles in other series such as Fairy Tale and Noragami. As for Lord Grandfather, thank you, first of all, Emmy Lowe for confirming this for me. He's voiced, in fact, by R. Bruce Elliott, who has played other characters such as Grey in Angels of Death, Hannibal Barca in Drifters, and the narrator in Space Dandy. Where should we start? Do we want to start with the fucking awful nobles or- Well, Lord Grandfather doesn't really do much. He's kind of there and he doesn't talk does, that much. Does Lord, does Lord Grandfather speak outside of more than one scene? I honestly can't remember. He at least speaks twice when he talks to Edward and his squad. And then he makes like small comments here and there in other scenes, but he doesn't do a lot. But I feel like as a commanding, authoritative voice, I think Arbrizelli is perfect, honestly. I mean, look- I've heard R. Bruce Elliott in things. I look at Lord Grandfather's, like, character design and what his role is. It's like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, same. This'll, whenever he gets more lines, it'll be more than better. So, cool. Great. Hopefully in season two. Yeah, exactly. I think R. Bruce Elliott did a good job making him sound creepy. And, like, oh god, oh god, oh god, this man does terrible, terrible things. Unfortunately, like, at this juncture until, like, probably july there's not much we can say right because obviously he's gonna have a larger role in the actual lore of the shadows house and what the shadows family even is so right now we don't have enough information but it's our bruce elliott he's oh yeah great. he's fun our four nobles though <laughs> are very weird <laughs> 
I have I have a note about this. Uh, a plus out of ten, we're all uh, posh sociopaths would punt into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Especially Ryan, right? I'll be I'll be honest. I didn't get far enough in that I remembered what each one was like specifically. But like all I remember is when they showed up again. It was like ah, oh, these fuckheads. <laughs> these people. Sophie's the butterfly, which is the easiest one to remember. I'm sorry, I shouldn't remember other other anime bloopers. Now I'm just imagining Johnny Bosch's uh, blue actress's blooper of "I'm a beautiful butterfly" coming out of her mouth. <laughs> so, Alex, I mean, if you're listening, please. Sophie gets to be a little bit creepy during the debut arc. <laughs> Where she's, like, watching John emit his soot powers, and she's just, like, all of a sudden she feels, like, all hot and bothered. She's literally using her proboscis to snort soot like it's cocaine in the 80s. <laughs> bunch of, bunch of, bunch of fucking Marie Antoinette people. And was I correct in seeing that, um, during that scene in the debut, there was one of those little shadow kids? The little mimics, the soot mimics. Oh yeah, she just like crushes up one of the Benitzo. Okay, so oh, yeah. that wasn't just I me. Sophie, Sophie, sweetie. Sophie's a little weird. Sophie is that aunt at the party who you're like, oh, I just want to pinch your cheeks. I hope she meets the one on my face. <laughs> God. These are characters where if this show was a little less serious, one of them would absolutely have an unusually long like pinky nail. And it wouldn't be commented on, but it'd be there. And we'd all know why. Oh, that would be that would be Dorothy's aesthetic, I think. No, Sophie's the cokehead. No, I'm saying with a long pinky nail. No, 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 uh, no, uh, Steph. That's the thing you use to inhale cocaine more efficiently. Oh. That's the only. Re- like, you don't do that for aesthetics. You do that to get high. <laughs> you can tell who's never done drugs before, which is probably I've never done drugs before. I don't do drugs. I just like rock bands from the '70s. Thank you. I've seen enough Martin Scorsese to know. I have a degree in film history. I've seen shit. I don't need to do anything. I just own a copy of Rumors, thank you. I know nothing. (laughs) I'm sorry for potentially calling you drug addicts. Are you, though? Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, I'll continue on. Um... I love Alex Moore, Sophie. I, again, please put Alex Moore in more things. I And I know it's because I love the show so much. Sophie reminds me of the Duchess from fucking Centaur World Season 2. But, like, toned down. Joseph, uh, Brett Murkai did a good job there, too. He was kind of the one that talked the least, in my opinion. He was kind of big and grumbly, and he had his big, his big doobie. Vanessa's Dorothy had that right level of wicked charm. Because I think out of all of them, she and Ryan were kind of the most nefarious. Yes. They had, between Dorothy and Ryan, they were the ones who, like, talkative. And I think the scene that really sold me on Vanessa's performance as Dorothy is when they go to the town and they pick the kids. She gives the coffee and she's like, we need to get more boys, girls than boys this time. Like, as if she's window shopping at the Macy's. But I think Jason really steals the show as Ryan. Ryan chewed the scenery. Ryan was a very emotive character, very much his heart on his sleeve. I think that he he really played up the arrogant asshole the best in the show. There's another character, a couple of other characters that we're going to talk about who are huge arrogant assholes, but Jason was on another level of eating ham with that. But it wasn't so over the top as to distract from the rest of the performances. Brian is just a big personality person and being and personalities are a huge plot device in this show. So I think that Jason really played it well and 
That's all I've got to really say. What else can we add about the uh, these uh, quote-unquote wonderful nobles? I don't know how many of you have actually seen what I'm about to reference. I know Amon has. The scenes in the debut with the nobles watching and being absolutely horrible to one another and to the contestants, it reminds me of the Skeksis banquet in the Dark Crystal. <laughs> you see it too, oh, don't right. you, Amon? Yeah, you're, you're, you're not wrong. You're correct, even. I have never seen the Dark Crystal, and I know I'm letting my boyfriend down by saying that. <laughs> I haven't we'll seen it We'll get to that. Either, but... I mean, to be fair, I'm surprised you weren't mailing me a copy of the Dark Crystal, seeing as last year I, I literally mailed you a copy of Big Fish because you had never seen it. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Anyway. Oh, well, I have to write that down <laughs> later. Taking my notes. I'm also just saying that Tim Burton's Big Fish, a.k.a. the best movie Tim Burton has ever made, is now on Netflix, so. It is a pretty killer uh, Pearl Jam track as the credit song, too. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I'm sorry, there's, oh, no, there's no reality where the juxtaposition of Tim Burton and Pearl Jam isn't funny. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> those, are just, those, are, those are two aesthetics that I don't that don't occupy the same part of my brain, that's all. And yet they yet they are two great tastes that work together. Think Big Fish, excellent movie, highly recommend it. Just I think I forgot that detail or didn't realize it was Pearl Jam in the first place. Anyways. Yeah, um particularly I want to um I want to bring up the series for a sec. In that it was a bunch of like Broadway and senior puppeteer hams just absolutely hamming it up. And here in in Shadow's house with the, with the debut, like it was just a similar vibe where they were just absolutely disgusting repulsive creatures played by actors who absolutely know that they are playing just absolute scumbags and are absolutely hamming it the hell up. That's when it's the most fun. Like, I think voice act there's been voice actors who've said it before, where it's like, the hero, that's fine. When you get to play a villain, though. Well, I mean, and it's not just that they're they're villains. It's that they're these incredibly monstrous, aristocratic figures who are just being absolutely terrible. It's basically the, um, with the thing I mentioned before, with eating the little soot kid, Uranus eating his own child. Kronos, is that you? <laughs> I I really I really dug it and then like at the very end with another character we'll be getting into probably in the next section or two receiving his final judgment over the shit he pulled in the final arc where they're just sitting around dunking on the guy we should totally fucking banish him he's gone Edward we know you want to get a better table but sir this is a Denny's <laughs> the good table we reserve for parties of 10 or more Edward, you've been banished to the Waffle House. <laughs> During a hurricane. <laughs> oh, because the Waffle House is closed! Oh no, 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 no. No, a bad enough hurricane where the Waffle House is still open, but they only have like one or two items and coffee. That's it. <laughs> yeah, you can sit down. That's no good. Coffee on enemy's stomach is the worst. I don't want to drag this on for too long, but they were just absolutely delicious in every scene they are in. Every ounce of scenery around them is just this pulp because they've chewed it so much. I, I really love it. Brent and Alex don't have as much to do. They're kind of more quieter. So Alex gets to have her creepy fucking moment where she's licking the damn window, just wanting fucking John's ass. <laughs> like, what the fuck, lady? This is a child. Um, 
But they both are really fun and I enjoy them a lot. Vanessa and Jason are the two that stand out, obviously. Primarily Jason, because it's fucking Jason Lebrecht being a hammy dickwad. <laughs> like, Ryan is the most egotistical, arrogant piece of shit. <laughs> and he doesn't care. He knows it and he doesn't care. And especially because during those aforementioned scenes where they're passing judgment on Edward... Uh, for the shit he's pulled. Or before that, when the debut concludes and they're meeting and they're going over how it went, Ryan's the first one to get into the violence mode and almost beat the shit out of Edward. Because he's like, you fool, how dare you? How dare you do this to me? How dare you not entertain us or some horseshit? So Jason playing that fun, egotistical, arrogant role is always a pleasure it's so much fun um the character in terms of vocal tone that kind of comes close to that could actually be lilium from akka except he's not as like hammy lilium's not as hammy lilium is more like calm cool collected stoic but he's also very much the arrogant narcissistic asshole I and mean, it's great and then Vanessa's Dorothy. This is the first time I've ever really heard or pay attention to Dorothy and I have seen one of the strongest in the world many moons ago but I like the regal, noble tone and air that she has for Dorothy. Like I think Megan was saying, there's like this subtle undertone of unsettling, of an unsettling nature with Dorothy. All of them have that, but I think it's mostly pronounced with Dorothy. And it just stands out so nicely, and I really enjoy that. All of these motherfuckers. <laughs> these bastards. Uh, anything else to add, Amon? Fuck these people. <laughs> they suck. The, the characters, the actors are all very good at playing these awful, awful people, but the characters are just terrible. Awful people. I hate you so much that I want to punch you in the sun. <laughs> I, 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 feel, I, mean, I feel like that is the effect the show is going for. These people are loathsome. So, you know, intended reaction. Very good. All around. Yay. Get a dainty little golf clap. All right. So why don't we move on? We're going to be getting into more characters, obviously, that have more shit to do. You know, like cleaning the house and being a bitch. <laughs> exactly. So our next trio of characters, they are um, living dolls and shadow masters that end up either befriending Emilico or antagonizing Emilico in a bit. Um, and this is also going to be the first section where we're going to be talking about an actor or actress playing two characters at once. So we have Mia and her shadow master, Sarah. We have Rosemary and her shadow master, Mary Rose. And we have Barbie and her shadow master, Barbara. Mia and Rosemary, they meet Emilico rather early on when Emilico is introduced to, like, the rest of the house. And we meet Mia's shadow master, Sarah, rather early on as well when Emilico falls from a window. Kate goes to try and help her when she's technically not supposed to leave her room before the debut. And they run into Mia and Sarah, and that's when they kind of start... Where really they kind of start learning more of the intent of the Shadow Masters and their living dolls a little bit. Um, also, Sarah's a bitch and Mia is way too devoted to her Shadow Master. Yeah! Like, to an uncomfortable level. Um, she gets her ass beat. Um, by choice! By choice. I'm not kidding. I can't stress that enough. Mia asks Sarah to punish her by choice. With a cane. Right. Uh, Rosemary and Mary Rose. 
in the aforementioned introduction that Emilico has to the rest of the house and the cleaning and everything like that, she's part of a four-person team that includes Mia, includes Lou, who we'll talk about in a while, and also includes their team leader, Rosemary. Rosemary, out of the four of them in that team, is presumably the oldest. Um, she's very sweet, very big sisterly, very wonderful. Uh, and then her shadow master, Mary Rose, who we don't really actually meet until after the debut. Her Rose Master is Lady Oscar. <laughs> Basically, that's the best way to describe Mary Rose, and Mary Rose is great. As for Barbie, Barbie is what is called a star bearer. And star bearers essentially are the cream of the crop among the kids in the children's wing. Barbie, she's seen as the, essentially the leader of the star bearers for the children's wing. And she's also very bitchy. And she like jumps the gun and tries to blame things on people and is like, get your shit together, guys. Barbie is very, very personality-wise kind of grouchy. Barbara is a bit more regal and refined, but also has still kind of has that tone to her. Typical middle manager. You give them an inch of power and just goes right to their head. Tisk tisk. But at the end of the show, too, it's because of Barbie and Barbara's sass that uh, things work out. <laughs> so uh, in regards to who's voicing these characters, like I mentioned before, these six characters are voiced by three different actresses. So for Mia and Sarah, we have Emily Fajardo, who is voiced characters such as Bananya in Bananya and the Curious Bunch, Manana Nonomura in Chio School Road, and Natsume in Konohana Kitan. As Rosemary and Mary Rose, we have Michelle Lee, who has voiced characters such as Sumire Hara in Assassination Classroom, Origami Toibichi in Data Live, and Corona Yasuhisa in Tokyo Ghoul Route A. As for Barbie and Barbara, we have Elizabeth Maxwell, who has voiced characters such as Ymir in Attack on Titan, Cordelia Gallo in Gosik, and Albedo in Overlord. Lord Almighty. <laughs> Wh oh which one do we want to start with? Because these three have, oh, these three have different personalities, and these three pairs. I say, I need to say pairs. I need to keep that in mind. These three pairs have different personalities, but they also have a fuck ton going on with each of them, for for different reasons. Where do we want to start? Do we want to start with? Uh, I'll pick one if nobody has any ideas. Why don't we start with Rosemary and Mary Rose and Michelle Lee? There we go. Because out of the trio, out of the th of the three pairs in this section, Rosemary Mary Rose doesn't really have as a lot compared to like Mia and Sarah or Barbie and Barbara. Um, to which, <laughs> this is one of those stark contrasts in personality between the shadows and their living dolls. And this is one of the more fun ones because we have Rosemary, like I said before, she's like the sweet kind big sister of the group and she's just like looking out for everyone and caring so much and then you have lady oscar <laughs> aka mary rose which is the best way to describe mary rose because mary rose is very much more of like a tomboy in terms of like mannerism and personality Mary Rose is an idealized woman to me. Yeah, but at the same time, Mary Rose is just like this very noble, very outstanding and honorable character. So how do we feel about Michelle Lee with uh, Rosemary and Mary Rose? Because I like it. Well, no, I like Mil I like the performance of Michelle Lee as Mary and Rosemary. Mary Rose and Rosemary. God, she just turned your name around. Fucking 
Okay. Kingdom Hearts to, ass, okay, motherfucker. Need, I'm going to bring this up real quick now that you brought that up. So it is custom in the Shadow's house for the Shadow Masters to name their living dolls as a um, representation of themselves. So typically they name their living dolls. Something close to them. Close to like them. Barbie, Barbara. Mia, Sarah. The only exception to this is Emilico. But this motherfucker did the Kingdom Hearts route. All it's missing is an X. Hey, it works. I don't care. It works. Rosix Marie. This, this, this episode is cursed now. I hope you're proud of yourself. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. The Kingdom Hearts joke is what made it cursed and not the talk about cocaine, nails, and cock. No, that's, no that's normal. <laughs> I meant the, no, not even the Kingdom Hearts thing. The making up the name with the X's, whatever the fuck you call that. That's what made it cursed. But that's how nobody's worth. They just stick an X in there. I, 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 that doesn't make it any less cursed. <laughs> Go yell at Tetsuya Nomura, not me. Why? Anyway. He's having fun. <laughs> to defeat Tetsuya Nomura, you'll have to cut off all of his belts first. <laughs> to defeat Tetsuya Nomura, you have to defeat my seven evil exes. Well, and all their belts. In order to fight Tetsuya Nomura, you have to fight the president of Square Enix at the end of Miratomata. Yoko Taro is not there. Yoko Taro is just on the sideline waving to you as he eats popcorn. <laughs> like, literally, one of the bosses of Nier Automata in the DLC is the president of Square Enix as it's the true. president of Square Enix. Are you it's fucking true. kidding me? I've never played Nier Automata, so. Oh, you're missing out. God oh damn it, Yoko Taro. I have Nier Automata and I just haven't played it yet. Anyway. Anyway, Michelle Lee is Oscar. I think the, the thing I like about the performance so much is that you, you can tell they are two different personality people when they're apart. And I think that's a, a sign for all of them, is that very much when they are not in the presence of their of their shadows, they are their own people. And I love the connect the disconnect in design, actually, between Rosemary being kind of the more demure, girly type, while Mary Rose is more masculine. And I think that Michelle really played that well off in their voice. Uh, Barbie, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Barbie and her shark teeth, I am pretty sure, would, in fact, bite your ankle if you fucked with her. Because she's also short. Oh, she's tiny. She's tiny but mighty. I like this kind of younger, aggressive Elizabeth Maxwell character. Because a lot of times, I think a lot of people peg Elizabeth Maxwell as the more adult, uh, like, mature characters with a more sexy voice. And Barbie sounds about as sexy as a angry chihuahua on Christmas morning. <laughs> She she sounds like an angry little dog that thinks that they are bigger than they are because they have a smidge of power, knowing that the owner will pick them up and put them on their lap. <laughs> and then they will calm down. Which, that being Barbara in this case. Barbara being a lot more calm and mature and very much more delicate with her words is, I think, the best way to describe the direction that Elizabeth has for her. And when they call out Edward about sneaking into the children's ward and, you know, kidnapping people... It felt less like you're being yapped at by a small dog and more that a fucking German shepherd has just showed up behind you and barked once. And the small dog thinks that she's done something terrifying, but the, it, in, in fact, it is just the big dog. And then I think to me, though, the stand of the section has to be Emily as Mia and Sarah because they are so different. And the way that Emily plays Sarah as such a good kind of clumsy, klutzy sister figure who at the same time harbors so much darkness. That's Mia, actually. Sarah is the Shadow Master. You oh, sorry, Mia, my apologies. Yep, Mia is the living doll. Sarah is the Shadow Master. I got them It's confused. gonna get very confusing. Forgive us. 
So I'm not going to lie that they, Emily did such a great scene where they're getting beat with the cane and they put the tissue in their mouth. It gave me a more sinister animal house. Please, sir, may I have another vibes? I'm going to disagree only because it reminded me of like the part in the gothic horror novel where it heavily implies that Outrun stage is like, no, the siblings who are too close together are doing what you think they're doing because this is that kind of novel. Like it sounded like she was getting off on it. Which, yeah. yeah, which like, which to be fair, they aren't actually sisters. No, no, but no, it's just like it's just like this seems wrong. Getting off because your master is beating you just feels like it should be icky, like intentionally so, but icky. Yeah, and especially because they're probably like teenage age. It's like I want to grow. Beat me with a stick. They and they foreshadow it because Emilico sees in the bathroom that there are scars, and then you have Mia's room too. That's always full of sudden like chaos. Because Sarah goes in there, right? And Sarah destroys anything that brings Mia joy. And and out of all of them, out of all of the three of them, I actually think it's Mia who is the most in sync with Sarah. Yep. Compared to everybody else. And I, I like that that is portrayed through their voices in that I think out of all of them, Sarah and Mia sound the most distant in tone, but they are, of course, the most closely in sync with each other. Interesting. Okay. I think they're more like closer in sync with their tones, which makes sense to me compared to like Rosemary and Mary Rose who are like way out there. And then Barbie and Barbara are relatively close, but not that close like Mia and Sarah. So it's very interesting. It's just very interesting how like some of the actors portray both the living doll and the shadow master because you can tell, and I think that's kind of the point, you can tell the relationship based on how these dolls and the masters like interact with each other. Like with Mia and Sarah, that's a very, very clear connection to the two of them. Um, any more thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I largely agree with Megan. Unfortunately... I watched the first half of this show like six months ago. So I have like jagged little memories of a bunch of the characters that we're talking about in this section. Um, I do remember Barbara quite a bit though, because she plays a pretty big role in the, uh, in the final arc of the season. Oh yes. I have to thank you, Edward, because you're the one who told us to do our jobs and to keep an eye out and be ever so diligent. So I have to thank you for that. Did it Hope to bite him in the ass? Did it seem like she kind of had it out for him? Oh, she hates him. Yeah, oh, she did. Barbara hates Edward. Okay. I don't, I don't think anyone in this house actually likes anyone else in this house. No. With maybe, no. With maybe the exception of, like, the some of the, like... Mary like, Rose likes people. Yeah, like, a few of them. Mary but Rose like, and Rosemary like people. Like, ignoring the debut kids, very I think very few of these people actually like anybody else. They all seem really angry and jaded because of the world in terms of shadow masters i think the only other nice shadow master that we've met so far is mary rose and who's to say that's even sincere let's be real here right right we know right now it is but it could turn bad later absolutely and i mean even then it feels like there's a clear difference between like these groups of shadow masters and their living dolls are just in it for themselves, and then uh, these Shadow Masters and Living Dolls have it out for this other Shadow Master and Living Doll, and it very clearly feels like Barbara falls into the latter category with Edward and Barbie. Well, not only that, too, we have a couple moments in the show where Barbie antagonizes Mia, because Sarah wants to be a, a star bearer, 
and Barbie keeps calling Mia failure all the time. And that's like the bone of contention with Mia and Sarah's relationship is they want to be a star bearer. Right. Barbie's like kind of out to get them because Mia will sometimes stand up for herself and all the other kids on occasion. And that can get her into trouble and Sarah's not a fan. So it's very interesting how the relationships between between the living dolls themselves, between the shadow masters themselves and shadow masters and their living dolls kind of operate. Yeah. Like one thing I did want to touch on, what which pair was the uh, sadomasochistic one? That's Mia and Sarah. Mia being the doll, Sarah being the master. Mia and Sarah. Thank you. Like, I do remember with them, one scene I really liked is when um, Kate sneaks out, she tries to save Emilico, and then she encounters them, and then you get the sense of the real nature of Shadow House when um, Mia basically puts on the metaphorical mask. She was incredibly friendly to Emilico while they were cleaning the house, but the second Sarah shows up and she has to play face... Like, she goes mean girls from zero to 60, and I really like that. That plot point's brought up the next day, and Mia's like, don't worry about it, that was Sarah's thoughts, not mine. And she puts on that bright, smiling face like we saw before. Which, you know, gets a little bit more dubious as the show goes on. Right. For Mia, she's putting on a lot of different faces and masks to get through the day. But deep down, it's like, I want to serve my master Sarah to the fullest extent and do whatever she wants. And she's and I'm willing to let her do whatever she wants to me to make that happen. So it's there's a lot <laughs> that Mia and Sarah deal with. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I wish I had more to say about the other two. But I really like I don't want to be a buzzkill to the actors involved in those two roles. But unfortunately, it was just too long ago for me to remember. Okay. Uh, I don't remember Barbara very well because I I watched that part of the show like two months ago. Uh, Elizabeth's really good as Barbie though. What a, what a little shithead. I'm impressed by how much of the early part of the show I feel like Barbie is the antagonist, even though in the grand scheme of things she is extremely small potatoes. So good on Elizabeth for that. I, I agree with what we were saying about Michelle for Rosemary and Mary Rose. Kudos to Emily for playing both sides of a horribly abusive relationship. Like, that's probably very taxing. Yeah. Honestly. Like, she she's good, but, like, that... that but me and Sarah creep me out. Just, their, their whole thing under... Like, I... Mm, no, don't like this. <laughs> I don't like it? No, sir. Not nope. at all? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't care for any of this that's happening. She does a really good job at it, but it's like... Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, not sure I'm okay with this, but here we go. No, it's I, I think I think the show does a lot of smart, interesting things with the whole like dynamic of here's a classic characters and here's another classic characters that just exist to be reflections of them, but still have their own personalities and so on. And I think you see that in something like me and Sarah, which is like this is inordinately fucked up. And just I, I guess kudos to them for not toning it down. <laughs> This show is the right level of violence. Yeah, I know. This is very much a show that it's like, we are what we are. If you can't take that, uh, we'll stop watching then. Which I appreciate. Um, yeah, no, they're they're all really good. Yay. I love Michelle Lee as Rosemary and Mary Rose. Rosemary is the sweetest little thing. Can I just say, the scene where um, freaking Emilico and Mia, um, and they're talking, because it's the day the dolls get like a deep cleaning, aka they get a bath, and... I was gonna say, are we gonna talk about adventures with head crabs? Adventures with head crabs, yes. So, uh, while they're getting their deep cleaning, Mia and Emilico 
are chatting and they're just talking about Rosemary and like, is she going to be okay? Like, Mia looks worried and Rose and Mia's just like, no, nah, I think she'll be fine. And I wouldn't be surprised that if she comes back when she's all better, she's like, oh my goodness, that was so embarrassing. Like mimicking Rosemary. And then sure enough, r immediately after that, Rosemary comes back and she's like, I'm sorry I made you too worried. Goodness gracious, that was so embarrassing. Like the almost the exact tone and mannerism Emily's Mia portrayed, which was the funniest shit. Because it's like, oh my god. And then Mia and Emilico just start laughing their asses off of how accurate that was. Um, I really like Michelle Lee. One of the main things that Michelle Lee gets to do is head crabs. <laughs> and and what I mean by head crabs. So there's this thing that is explained early on in the show called scorches and phantoms so scorches are what happen is little bits of soot um that kind of start piling up together and start becoming their own living thing if there's a lot of soot piled up in one spot and all together it becomes a phantom and phantoms are big scary creatures that will attack you and they look like little spiders and i think it's like episode three um a emergency occurs and because a phantom is roaming about and all of the kids have to try and basically kill it. And um, Rosemary's not that lucky. It almost hangs her. It almost hangs her. But um, because of the quick thinking of Mia and Milico, they managed to save Rosemary. And not only that, it also introduces us to what is called in this world soot sickness. Which becomes a very important thing after the debut arc is concluded. Where basically, a living if a living doll has ingested a lot of soot, they contract what is called soot sickness and essentially become, for lack of better phrasing, mindless zombies. And will lose their memories if you if they're fed soot coffee. Mm-hmm. We, we'll get back to that part of it later, but for the sake of Rosemary, that's what we'll go through right now. Can I make a bad joke, please? Oh no, go ahead. Emilico was so late that she had to run really fast. A soot was hidden nearby, so when Emilico went by, the soot wanted to give them trouble. Uh, here, Emilico saw the first soot. The soot became a, a phantom. I can't give you my broom, <laughs> Emilico said. Why not, said the phantom, because you are phantom. So Emilico beat the phantom in the head and, and ran off thinking, Rosemary is in trouble in there and went faster. <laughs> You know, it's a real testament that I can still recognize Half-Life Full-Life consequences just from, like, the rhythm of the bad writing. <laughs> I did not know what was happening. I'll, I'll, I'll explain later. There's a video. It's a oh whole thing. Oh my god, I want him surprised! Part of me was like, I hope someone gets this. But I didn't know if I... You, you, you reading it made me realize there's a very distinct style to the bad writing in that piece. It's very recognizable. God, Half-Life Full-Life Consequences is f it's a piece of fucking art. I'm sorry. Okay, I will take your word for it anyway. <laughs> anyway, I really like Michelle Lee as Rosemary and Mary Rose. Um, because I think, like I said earlier, the different personalities are very distinct between these two. Um, and they're just such a delight. Rosemary with her big sisterly, like, innocent, like, now, now, don't you fret about trivial things. It's not our job. And then you have Mary Rose's, like, aha, I am here. We will help you with everything. Like, Mary Rose is a bit more boisterous and, like, more proud and open. And it's just so fun. There's not much more I can add with Barbie and Barbara and Elizabeth Maxwell. Barbie is gremlin child, angry, short, little chihuahua gremlin child. And Barbara is just, like, short 
less gremlin child, I guess. <laughs> um, it's very nice, fun contrast between the two, especially considering we have Barbie for most of the show. And with her grouchy personality and just yelling at everyone, like, hey, <laughs> it's very fun. And like you said, Megan, you don't often hear Elizabeth for a character that is considered like the drop dead gorgeous sexy one. Or the more mature character. Right. That's usually the typecast. Instead, we have gremlin child and it works really nicely. But no, the, Emily is definitely a standout for this section 100% because of all of the shit I'm going to say Mia specifically goes through. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. We spend more time with Mia than we do Sarah. But Mia just like being this calm, cool, collected, mature character who cares about her little co-highs, Lou and Emilico. But then like this dark inner turmoil growing in Mia when it comes to her master, Sarah, to the point where sadomasochism is a thing. It's very chilling and very unsettling. And I really commend Emily for that. Uh, any other thoughts on these characters before we move on to who are essentially our antagonists of the season? I'm all set. Okay, so antagonist time. They are led by Edward. Edward is a noble on the second floor uh, who really wants to climb the social ladder, get to the third floor, and basically dethrone the four nobles on the third floor because he doesn't think that they are good or well-suited to serve and help Lord Grandfather, and he thinks he is. Uh, he is assisted by, assisted by his two fellow shadows, uh, Eileen and Gerald. Um, and they each have interesting set powers. Oh, it's of a, it's a note that these characters, the, the shadow masters have these things called set powers and each of them are very different and unique depending on the character. Edwards can control sound. Eileen can create these messenger crows or bigger crows. That are very loud. Very loud. And Gerald, we only got to see it, a glimpse of it at the end of the season, but it looks like he can, he can control soot in like this vine type form for like capture and restraint and things like that. And Edwards actually, who we have to find out how actually the shadows and the living dolls work. Edward brings in our introduction to that. So in terms of who voices these characters as Gerald, we have Corey Phillips, who has voiced characters such as Yona in Fire Force and minor characters such as Matsu Daira in Kokuchi and Satoshi Ashitaki in Stars Align. As for Eileen, we have Anastasia Munoz, who has voiced characters such as Wendy Oldbag in Ace Attorney, Emmy Kino in Concrete Revolution, and Cranberry in Magical Girl Raising Project. And here's a fun one for you. Edward is voiced by Christopher Smith, who has voiced characters such as the King of Midland in the Berserk Golden Age trilogy films, Lem in Jormungand, and Mikaido in Moribito Guardian of the Spirit. So... Unfortunately, I can't really talk a lot about Corey and Anastasia's performance, mostly because I think that they both kind of fit into the ensemble very well without uh, having to stand out a lot. Mm -hmm. I will say I was very much impressed by Anastasia having to channel Edward through her voice because Edward was using her voice at one point. No, actually. Whose voice was that? You're referring to when Emilico's kidnapped, correct? Yeah, that's Edward using her voice. No. I'm gonna do this as a side note. Special props and a shout out to the female voice that Edward takes on 
Uh, Melly Grant. Okay, I was wondering who that was because it was really good. Yeah, I had the um, I had the closed captions on. It was basically credited as Christopher Vale Doll, so I think that's the um, the Vale Doll he took the disguise of. Okay, cool, because Melly was great. No, but Anastasia does a good job playing this kind of like quieter, more like the second in command to. For all intents and purposes, Gerard, Corey, and Anastasia's characters are basically the henchmen of Edward. Uh, and I think they do a good job fitting into the background as to not overshadow Edward's... Uh, overshadow. <laughs> God damn it. Edward's performance. To which, man, um, Christopher Smith does a fantastic job as Edward. I think he's that right level of diabolical and over-the-top and spectacle without being something from outside the show. And to me, the biggest thing that Edward's performance reminded me of, and I had asked in the chat, does anybody know if Caitlin Glass, Emmy Lowe, or Sean Gann, are they huge Disney fans? Because to me, I love going to Disney World. I don't like Disney the company, but like Disney the parks, I fucking love. Mm -hmm. And my second favorite ride at Disney World is the Haunted Mansion. I feel like that would be up my alley if I ever went to Disney. Oh, we're taking you. Yes. We're going to take you one day. Me, you, Gigi, and like, I think we're just going to take a giant dub talk field trip to Disney one year. Fuck yeah, let's go. Save money. Uh, after the plague's over. But to me, the biggest thing that Edward kind of channeled was a lot of the ghost host from the Haunted Mansion, who was played by Paul Freeze back when the ride opened and is now impersonated by Joe Lehay. But it felt like it was channeling that. I, I don't know why that gave me that vibe. Other than the fact that to me, in my mind, the way the living dolls kind of work to me, because they have no joints that you can see, remind me of animatronics. Like really high-end animatronics. Oh, okay. And because you learn that something's up with Edward because he is both shadow and doll, and you finally get to the part where you learn that eventually the shadows and the dolls will merge, effectively killing the human. Because the dolls are human. Yeah, it's this huge thing where it's like in three different phases how it's explained. Phase one, the shadows are born from the morphs of the dolls. Phase two is that the two interact with the intent of the shadow of developing a personality. Phase three is they... Um, they debut. They be debut, they get their soot powers, and they let those manifest. And then, like, the fourth stage eventually is once they are, like... Of age. Of age and single mind and singular, like, everything, the shadow takes over the living doll. Like a weird parasite. Right. It's very... It's a very weird, complicated thing, and Edward is the introduction to that. Yeah. For me, I think the reason why Edward's performance works so much is because... Christopher is able to channel a character that is both trying to be loyal to this master while also realizing that he may have his own personality that is beyond what the master wishes and he's pushing it down. But there was something very like creepy ghost host narratory to me and I think that's why it works. He he's just creepy. <laughs> but he's he's creepy in a sense though that Unfortunately, I never felt truly threatened by the character because I think he was so sure of himself, he set himself up for defeat. And I think that when Chris realizes he, when Edward realizes, oh, I fucked up during the debut, it was a really good moment. That's when I feel like that facade really broke. But yeah, overall, I, I genuinely really enjoyed Chris's performance, especially from an actor I'm not 100% 
familiar with, actually. Which is weird because I own Moribito. I think he's mostly L.A. I mean, not even anime too, too much either. Like, he does a lot of prelay. Well, hold on. He has a lot of anime credits under his belt, honestly. Um, but no, he's primarily L.A., so that's how come we don't often see him in the Dallas pool. Gotcha. Despite him having a lot of anime credits, I think he's mostly prelay as well. Oh, he's done stuff for Funimation before he was in DXD. He did DXD. I saw him um, listed for like Full Metal Alchemist, but it's not often. All right, gentlemen, thoughts on our wonderful villains? I really don't have too much to say about Gerald. Honestly, because he's probably going to be a bit more of a predominant player later, but doesn't get to do too, too much. Kind of the same thing with Eileen, even though she... Eileen gets to do a little bit more because she's sort of the messenger between, like, the nobles and Edward. But even then, like, the two of them feel like they're going to be bigger players as the series progresses. Yeah, especially because... A point is made that the three of them passed their debut together. So the three of them have known each other for a long time. Right. So really, this section is kind of about Edward. Which, yeah, holy shit. One thing that may or may not surprise you, in several iterations of Batman, the Lego video games, he's the voice of the Joker. Oh no shit! Oh. Okay, I see it. That is predominantly how I know him. But he's he's done the Joker a couple of times, and that's how I know he can really, really ham it up. Because um, he takes a very Mark Hamill-esque approach to the character. And, like, you can hear it here. If you knew to look for it, like, it, it's there. And also, like, huge props to Melly Grant for being able to... Um, to match that sort of campy energy for, like, a scene or two. Melly is fantastic. I love Edward through the debut arc as he's just getting more and more frustrating because not enough of the, um, not enough of the Shadowmaster and Living Doll candidates are going to fail because, like, all the nobles are expecting this big spectacle where a bunch of the kids are going to die, and then they don't. Just one. Mm. Sad face. And then in the very final episode where he is absolutely groveling to Lord Grandfather. Ugh, he's just a smarmy little shit and I love him. Um, but the three of them did their good, did a good job and I'll let Amon take it from here. Uh, it's been long enough that uh, Eileen and Gerald are a little fuzzy to me. I do remember liking their performances and I, I agree with everyone said. Um, yeah, Christopher's great. He's just unsettling. There's just so many questions. Like, who is this guy? Who is his shadow person? Why aren't they around? What is his deal? A lot of it's kind of mystery, but it's also just he's just very... He's very off-putting. There's something up about him, even when it becomes clear what exactly is up about him. I actually thought Megan put up an interesting point. I never like, I never found Edward threatening specifically, but it always came off as kind of threatening just because he had power. Yes. He's not going to kill anybody, but he can absolutely engineer a situation that will get someone killed. And that was what was upsetting. Yes. And it does get somebody killed. Yeah, he does. Exactly. He, he tries to engineer shit so that way other people get in trouble and he doesn't, i.e. the last couple of episodes. Exactly. That, that's sort of what makes him unnerving is because he can, he can pull that off. And it's like, mm. Who would Lord Grandfather actually believe? Me or a child? Yeah, exactly. The justice system. <laughs> dun 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 dun. dun. 
Christopher's really good. He just plays with the right level of kind of slime and arrogance. Um, but he's also, like, really... Edward clearly knows that if he fucks up, it's going to be bad. And I think Christopher did a good job of keeping that in the performance, that for all of his pretense of confidence, he knows this could all go very, very wrong. And he's really desperate for that to not happen. That's, that's what's interesting about this show. Aside from maybe Lord Grandfather, which I'm not even sure about, I feel like no one is really confident about their position in the world. They just know they want to be at his side, but not for why. It's just a sense of, like, the closer we are to Grandfather, the safer we are, so that's the only thing we're going to care about, because otherwise, like, we could just be horribly fucked out of the blue. Right. Everybody who's not at Lord Grandfather's side is is, is virtually dispensable. Exactly. And, like, everyone knows that. Like, the only ones who don't are just, like, the new debut kids who are too new to know that. And that everyone else is deeply aware of that fact. It's a great show. <laughs> I love it. There's so much fun lore and, like, story to this. Oh, I live for this shit. Yeah, Anastasia and Cory don't have a lot. Anastasia has a lot more to say than Cory does. Gerald is the one out of the three who's very much relegated to the background. Very quiet. More stoic of the three. And I think Cory does very well, and I really hope Cory gets to do more with Gerald in the next season. And Anastasia is... Both, on, both Eileen and Gerald are, like, the moral and ethical backbone for Edward because Edward does some rather fucked up shit. To the point that sometimes Eileen and Gerald are just like, okay, I think you need to stop. And I think Anastasia, who's the more vocal of between her and Gerald, I think Anastasia's Eileen comes off with that very well. Let's be real, Christopher Smith is the star of the section. Oddly enough, outside of Arbrus Elliot, um, as Lord Grandfather, Christopher Smith and what he does with Edward with the tone of voice in the performance is what my brain acquaints to as the typical, like, sounding gothic horror trope. Like, it's, it's a tone of voice that fits into this world and into this genre, like, seamlessly. It can be very unsettling. It can be very menacing. It's really good. M among the, the minor characters or the secondary characters of the show, like, this is a really, really one of my favorite performances of that. Because of how dark and menacing and just just so proud edward is as a character i think it just works so well and it the tone of voice really just fits that gothic horror style to me and i just love it so much it's a very good tone and a good mix of character for christopher smith to play dear sweet lord i love it uh is there anything else with our trio of villains or are we ready to talk about the kids I'm ready to talk about some kids. All right. We're going to talk about some kids. Let's talk about the other two girls uh, of the show, the other two female pairs of the show. We have Lou and Louise, and we have Rum and Shirley. Lou we meet early on because she's a part of Emilico's team with Mia and Rosemary. Lou comes off as this quiet, very indecisive. She said early on that she can't really make decisions for herself. And that is actually a relative plot point, meaning she just doesn't know how to be a person half the time. Louise, her shadow master, on the other hand, oh, sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> Louise is just like energetic, hopeful, very prim, proper lady, but also likes to be the biggest show off in the world. <laughs> She's like, look at me, look what I can do. 
Uh, she's also a little bit dense. Lou is very smart. Louise a little bit dense. <laughs> but they are very, very fun little pair. And Louise is obsessed with Lou to no end. And I may as well go through some shadow, uh, sit powers as well. Louise's sit power, we find out that Louise can actually control a living doll's mind with her sit powers. It came in handy. Uh, then we have poor, poor Rum and Shirley. <laughs> so, sweet summer child. Rum is very timid. She's very shy. When we first interact with her, she's not that confident in herself. And she's just very quiet and shy. To the, and her relationship with her master Shirley is essentially non-existent to the point that Shirley never gave her a name. So Rum basically named herself. And the more the series goes on, especially during the debut arc, Rum begins to gain a bit more confidence in herself. She is a bit more determined and has this fire to finally be with her master Shirley and do all these things that she never got to do. There was a point made where Rum never kissed her master Shirley goodnight. Um, before she goes to bed, she never really got to interact or talk with her. And then we have Shirley, who we don't really know anything about outside of what Rum tells us. The sad news about this is, though, Rum and Shirley are the ones who fail the debut in the end. And unfortunately, it's right as Shirley's starting to actually, like, start gaining that personality that we were talking about before and how the phases and how this whole integration between um, Shadow Master and Living Doll works. However, it's too little too late. And as far as we know of, and I say this with very good reason, as far as we know of, Shirley is dead. And Rum is now repurposed as Among the Veiled Dolls. So, who voices these wonderful little girls? I'm gonna start with Lou and Louise. So Lou and Louise is voiced by Marissa Duran, who I don't think we've actually had the chance to talk about yet on this show. Yes, I don't think we have. We have not. Um, but she's had a really big year this year. She used to do a lot of like background roles, secondary characters, but she's had a bigger year this year. Uh, she's voiced characters such as Megria in Banished from the Heroes Party, Mitsuki Konishi in The World Ends With You, and Kyoko Hori in Hori Mia. As for Rum and Shirley, that would be Risa May. Risa May is actually brand new. Um, a lot of stuff that I found is among the more recent. So she has voiced characters such as Nadelia in Kakashi Goto. Uh, she's Futaba Igarashi in My Senpai is Annoy. And she's Satome in the upcoming dub for Sing a Bit of Harmony. So I feel like there's going to be a lot more to talk about with Risa and Rum and Shirley. So why don't we start with our thoughts on Marissa as Lou and Louise. It was an absolutely spectacular kind of Ojo-sama kind of. Yes, that's the best way to describe Louise, 100%. Marissa's portrayal of Louise is that girl who has like seven TikToks <laughs> all dedicated to herself. Oh my god! As someone who peruses TikTok regularly, I can see that. And like, the way that she speaks is like, the only person in the world that matters to Louise is herself, then Lou. And that's only because she thinks Lou is cute. Louise justifies it as Lou is Louise's face. Therefore, she is precious to Louise because it's her. And that's it. That's like, it. That's how she Have you ever it. seen the meme of somebody's like in the back, like drowning in a pool and the person in front is like smiling and the person in the comments is like, X is drowning in the back. And the reply comment is, this isn't about them. That is Louise. That is 100% Louise. Oh so, no. So she's a narcissist. 
Yes! And Marissa does a really good job of playing her as a narcissist. She is so big. She's such a big personality. On the other hand, Lou is such a doormat. Yes. Like, Lou is so, like, down that she can't even make decisions for herself. Perfect for somebody who can easily be controlled by Soot, so. Ah, yes. And I think the thing, though, I like about Marissa's performance as Lou is how low-key it is. Because Lou is at one point running around with giant garden shears and threatens to, you know, give Ricky a buzz cut. Because, frankly... Ricky deserves to be punished. Ricky deserves a lot of things to happen to him. Ricky deserves a permanent spot in baby jail. (laughs) I love Ricky, but he's a fucking dick. I thought he got a little better, though, at the end of the debut. Oh, he gets better at the end, but at what, like, at the beginning of the debut, I said, haha, I was like, haha, get dunked, Ricky, at one point. But no, I really, really like how much of a good contrast that Marissa does for the two sides. Like, they sound similar, obviously, once you realize the morph's personality is based completely off this human child that's been abducted and brainwashed with the power of the uh, Expresso at the evil con- El- evil uh, Casita. But I don't think they were my favorite performance out of the main kids, though, but they were really solid. What else What else do we think about Marissa with Lou and Louise? Because she's, I think she's a, a delight. <laughs> Especially her Louise. Ojo Samalaf, you, you nailed it. Yeah. Like, Louise is the, like, the stereotypical Ojo-sama. Like, that's the personality Louise takes. Like, one of the hardest things for an English-language voice actor to pull off very well, she pulled off very well. Let me tell you how many times I could complain that somebody did the Ojo-san laugh incorrectly. And I'm not really that nitpicky of a guy. In terms of levels of Ojo-sama, like, the only other one that I could think of was Monica as Renge in Oberon High School Host Club. Is that the level we're also basing it off of, or? Yes. Because Monica as Renge in Oberon is a sight to behold, and Louise is up there too, I think. <laughs> but it's also just great that she's this very pushy character, but at the same time, her pushiness actually gets shit done. In its own way, yeah. She's an undercover badass in a way, because um, when Emilico goes missing, again, I mentioned Louise using her set powers to control a veiled doll to get themselves out of Ricky's room before Barbie and Barbara find the group. And she was the smart one and decided, oh, I'm not going to take part in this anymore. I'm going to bed. Instead, though, she decides to go get the star bearers. <laughs> yep. To freaking bust Edward. But at the same time, it's also for selfish reasons, because she's just like, now we'll become a star bear. <laughs> she is not subtle about her motivations, Louise. <laughs> she, she's not a shallow character, but she's extremely upfront about what her motivation is. And that motivation is her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And how she treats Lou is a reflection of that as well. <laughs> no, I really love Marissa as Lou and Louise. It's not my favorite performance of the main, uh, out of the main six. <laughs> it's not my favorite of them, but it, it's kind of up there because of how freaking much of an energetic, not necessarily flamboyant, but noble presence that Louise gives. But then you also have Lou, and Lou is just very hushed, very quiet. She's also very smart. She's not stupid. I think that comes through a lot during the debut when she is mostly with Ricky. And Ricky's trying to use Lou. (laughs) 
And Lou kind of is a little bit absent-minded, but at the same time, she's not an idiot with what Ricky's trying to do. But she's just like, if you try any horse shit, I will give you a wonderful buzz cut <laughs> with these shears. Blue, for as absent-minded and indecisive as she is, Marissa, I think, played her very, very well as the quiet, unassuming kind of girl. And as a counterbalance to her, Louise. It's a fun contrast, and it's so precious and wonderful and great. Amon, I think that leads you. What do you think of Marissa? Uh, she's great. I, I mean, for all the reasons you guys have said, like, uh, Louise is just really fun in just what a unrepentantly self-absorbed person she is. She is looking out for number one and uh, also Lou because she's an extension of Louise. And I, I also like how common reserved she is as Lou. Um, this is definitely one of the ones where the two personalities are really far away from each other, but I think she does a good job of... Not the same person, but there, there's a simpatico tuness. Like, a lot, a lot of these ones where the one actor is playing both sides of the living doll shadow relationship uh, do a good job of making them feel like they are... They match, even if they're not very similar. And I think I think Marisa, Marissa does a good job with that. Okay. Poor sweet rum. <sighs> so, we're gonna say this right off the bat. Risa didn't really get the opportunity to voice Shirley. No. Because Risa doesn't say anything as Shirley. <laughs> Realistically, we don't have anything on Shirley. So the conversation primarily is going to be about Reese's performance as rum. To which, oh, this poor sweet child. This precious being. Emilico is aptly nicknamed Miss Sunshine, but I want to protect rum with my life. Poor little rum. I want to protect this little girl. With Risa and her performance as Rum, because the only other thing I've heard Risa May in as of right now is Nadelia in Kakushigoto, and that's vastly different. Because Rum is just, Rum is very quiet, very timid, very shy. She lacks in confidence, but during the debut she starts gaining a bit more confidence and determination. A lot of it stems from her interactions with Emilico. Just this bright, positive person, and she essentially becomes Rum's first friend. And because of that, she wants to be Shirley's friend. She wants to serve her Shadow Master and get to know her and do all these things that she never has gotten a chance to do. So now she has this really good determination. And I love the growth throughout the debut how and how Risa progresses and grows rum. She's still the, like, quiet, timid-sounding girl, but she gains more and more confidence. We basically find out she has, like, a photographic memory. Because she memorizes the map that Edward gives each of the kids. And she's also very, very smart. Because she calculated um, how much time is left in the hourglass with the soot. Based on, like, distance and the amount of time they've been walking around and all this fun stuff. Like, she is actually probably the smartest of these characters. So, I really love Risa as Rum. And I... Based on how things ended up with her and Shirley, I really hope we get to see a lot more of Rum and what Risa does with her and potentially Shirley in the next season. I totally agree with that about Rum. I think Risa May makes Rum so both adorably cute and adorably vulnerable at the same time. Out of all the kids, Rum is the one with the most to lose. She and her master don't have a bond, which we learn is that they never interacted for Shirley to get a personality, which is what she needed to survive. And I think that's why it hurts so much when you see Rum crying and Shirley dies. 
and disintegrates in her hand only to leave that little ribbon behind. Because Rum is very much a non-verbal child or, and a child who can't express themselves so they use a little finger puppet to do it named Rummy. Red Rum. Red Rum. No, that's not- Oh my god! Red Rum! That's where it comes- Steph, no! Steph, no! You cannot tell me! Steph, no! Steph! Steph, stop! I'm going to make the very rare call here. Corner. (laughs) Guys, I know you're upset, but she's not wrong here. (laughs) I'm not wrong. Just because you're right doesn't mean you're correct. You cannot tell me that her name and the little finger thing is not a parallel. What is a shadow house if not a house that is haunted? (laughs) you go to the corner <laughs> both of you up to stephen king's house <laughs> great i'll ask you to autograph my book go play with molly the thing of evil <laughs> but just like i think the thing i like about risa risa's performance is that it does sound like such a vulnerable little girl who slowly gains the confidence to do the right thing inspired by somebody who just for once in her fucking life believes in her because nobody believes in her. They were the first to blame her for the the phantoms when it wasn't her fault. And I like the fact that she is smart. She is by far the smartest out of all of the children, even smarter than Sean and John. I think the thing that really stood out to me, though, as the defining thing in her character is that she figures out what time of day it is just by looking at the hourglass. And she whispers it to Emilico because she's afraid to talk in front of somebody else. But God, Risa is just so cute in this. And I know she's starting to get a lot more stuff. I think she's one of the two leads in Sing a Bit of Harmony. Yes, she is. And she's the female lead in My Senpai is Annoying. She is, of course, uh, the mermaid girl in Genshin who did no wrong. Stop being mean about that character. So yeah, no, definitely Risa impressed me with her performance. I actually kind of liked it a little bit more than Lou and Louisa out of the two girls. I think she was honestly one of the strongest members of the ensemble. All right, boys, what do we think? She's a precious little bean. <sighs> Sad. Sad bean. <laughs> Sad. I, I find it interesting, your wording, where unfortunately um, Remy was not able to play Shirley because technically she still gets to play two characters. She plays Rum and then she plays Rummy. Yeah, you're right, actually. Effectively, you could say Rummy could potentially be what Rum thinks Shirley is. Yes. There we go. I didn't actually think of it that way. Okay. Yeah, I I really, really like that um, Remy sort of plays her with... She is so timid. She shrinks at just about everything. But she's also frighteningly intelligent. And through her time... With Emilico, she turns that intelligence into resourcefulness, which makes the end of the debut arc where she unfortunately dissolves into soot all the more sad. Or not rum, surely. But I do also like that um, it is very strongly implied that she's going to show up again at some point because she has been quietly, subtly helping Kate and Emilico out. Yeah, again, after she failed the debut, it's stated by Edward that Rum was going to be repurposed as a veiled doll. So there is plenty of opportunity for Rum to make her grand return, and potentially Shirley as well. Okay, Alman. Sad. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so, it's so heartbreaking. The Shirley starts to come out of her shell, it's all going well, and then it just doesn't fucking matter. 
Like, Reese is really good. That whole thing had the emotional heft it was supposed to. It's just a fucking bummer. <sighs> you don't want anyone to lose the debut, but someone had to. Yeah. Listen, it's not that entertaining if everybody passes the debut. I mean, this, this feels like the kind of show that keeps you on edge partially, because... You know it's not above, like, oh, bad things won't happen to the main cast. It's like, no, this this is the exact kind of show where, like, no, bad things will happen. You don't you don't know what bad things, but they'll happen. Again, the novels want to be entertained, and it's not entertaining if everybody passes the debut. The gladiator fight is only entertaining if someone loses. Yeah, the show is basically rigged. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I mean, it, it is a very good performance, and I'm in agreement with what you guys have been saying, and... It's a bummer. Nice ladies deserve better. Oh, all right. Is there anything else about either Risa May or Marissa Duran, or are we ready to move on to the boys? Yes. Ah, <laughs> the boys. We have Ricky and his Shadowmaster Patrick. Hi. And we have Sean and his Shadowmaster John. <laughs> Both Ricky and Sean are introduced early on, but they don't really get to do anything until it comes up with um, figuring out how the fuck a phantom occurred, right? And this is when Barbie's trying to blame someone and she's causing trouble for Rum and Emilico tries to defend her. And then Sean goes in to help out Emilico and Rum and Ricky's an asshole and <laughs> punches him in the face. So... Emilico, Rum, and Sean end up on night watch duty in order to try and figure out what the fuck is happening. And that's where we really get to start knowing who Sean is as a character. And then Ricky, we don't really start to get to know more about Ricky until the debut. Same with his master, Patrick. And then John, we actually don't meet until the debut. John's a himbo in the making. Pretty fucking accurate. <laughs> but we love John. <laughs> John is my favorite. But there's a lot more to these characters. We'll kind of delve into them as we go along. In terms of who voices these characters, I'm going to start with Ricky and Patrick. Ricky and Patrick are voiced by Adam MacArthur, among his first Funimation roles, believe it or not. Um, you would know him as other characters such as Koku Hanabata, a.k.a. Trumpet in My Hero Academia, Chifuyu Matsuno in Tokyo Revengers, and of course, Yuji Itadori from Jujutsu Kaisen. Sean and John are voiced by Jordan Dash Cruz, who has voiced characters such as Koki Aurora Nakano in Anime Guitarist, uh, Ryo Hoshino in The Millionaire Detective Balance Unlimited, and Lawrence in The Wise Man's Grandchild. So how about we start with Ricky and Patrick and Adam? Adam and Ricky and Patrick. Um, why don't I let Amon go first this time? Motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the worst. They get better, but they're the worst. Oh, they're awful starting out, especially Ricky. What a what a little shit. <laughs> I say this is a prelude to complimenting Adam's performance. He is great as these two. I don't think calling them Little Lord Flottenroy is correct technically, because I think that that's more of like a dress sense than a personality per se. But like they are such the like little shitty aristocratic sons who have been handed everything. And no, they can get away with basically anything because dad's in charge. They're also major kiss asses. Yeah, exactly. They're suck ups. Like, they're, they're the, the fucking worst. They're all smiles and dimples when the people in charge are around, and then they're just the. They'll be absolutely monstrous the minute they're out of earshot. Um, Adam's great at it, though. Like, I. I, I, wanted, I wanted to smack these two in the rolled up newspaper for so long. 
Like, just one of those three Stooges double smacks. Absolutely. He brings it. Like, he commits to it. I really appreciate how much effort he puts into making these two completely insufferable. Especially when they're acting off each other, because it's it's that it's sunny meme of like, oh my god, there's two of them. <laughs> <laughs> more than more than any other of the main characters, these two feel like the ones were like they're deliberately being directed to be the most similar to each other. That is exactly what I was just thinking. Tonally, they're very similar to each other because they are very close in terms of their mindsets. Yeah, they're they're the closest to being, like, the same person in two bodies. Uh, and I think Adam nails that really, really well. He's great. And the only difference is just some of their personalities because it's brought up rather early on. Patrick is, like, the, the noble, like, airy kind of person. But at the same time, Ricky is the one who's kind of actually pulling the strings. But not enough to be noticed. It's enough to get Patrick to stand out more than he does. So between the two of them, Ricky's more of the mastermind. In They're like the child of two college frat douches. <laughs> Fuck! It's like, it's like Return of the King if uh, Wormtongue was both the like slimy assistant and the king. God damn it! So does that make Sean and John uh, Pippin and Mary if Pippin and Mary were supposed to be the same person but got split into two? Sean, Sean's too smart to be Pippin or Mary. John, John is absolutely the Pippin and Mary of this group if we're going to go for this particular, like... One Lord of the Rings. Technically, I brought up Brad Dorf, but your point stands. <laughs> what else do we got to say about Adam? Oh, God. You know how we were talking about Star Trek The Next Generation earlier in this episode? Mm -hmm. Patrick's Wesley Crusher. <laughs> Which one is Wesley again? He's, he's like the little teenager Will Wheaton plays who nobody likes. Oh, he's yeah, 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 yeah. He's somehow inexplicably a teenager that found his way onto the bridge. Shut up, Wesley. <laughs> because if I recall correctly, nepotism. Yeah, that sounds right. So Patrick is 100% Wesley Crusher. <laughs> what does that make Ricky? They're both Wesley Crusher. They're two Wesley Crushers at the same time. <laughs> They're two Wesley Crushers in a trench coat, but then also chopped in half. They're short enough they can stack on top of each other and make one whole person, which is the point. You can make one whole Wesley Crusher out of them. <laughs> Fuck. Hold on, hold on. Because, you know, in order for a Shadow Master to be complete, they have to consume their living doll. So if Patrick does that to Ricky, he becomes Wesley Crusher. So I am not super familiar with Adam's anime work, but I think that he made Patrick sound like the most punchable 12-year-old on the face of a planet. Patrick or Ricky? Yes. <laughs> he is the reason why why Sakura's brother jumps the fence and card capture Sakura to throw down with a fifth grader. <laughs> oh my god. As a, as, as a small reminder, have you ever seen Star versus the Forces of Evil? No. Okay, because I was about to say, he he's also Marco Diaz. Megan doesn't watch Western cartoons unless people force her to. Like, I watched Centaur World because I was held down and got obsessed. But no, I think Adam does a really good job about making both sides of Patrick and Ricky just be little shitheads. But at the same time, I think that they definitely get the pathos they want from Ricky. Like when Ricky's about to get fucking Indiana Jones. John, open the fucking door. Bam! And then one punch! And then you have Alex Moore in the window just snorting a line of cocaine with her tongue on the window. I don't know. They destroyed the builder! That's my over dramatic version of that scene. 
But I like the fact that they just kind of realize that they're perfect for each other. They're just perfect little assholes for each other. And that's what works about Adam's performance. He was that right level of annoying child mixed with prideful little douche canoe. And I like that a lot of the times that their pride is what gives them their comeuppance. And I love the part where it's like, well, why didn't it work? I did the right thing. And it's just like, oh, honey, shut up. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. Uh, so that's all I got to say about those two. Bless your heart in the Southern way. In the Southern sense. Which means go fuck yourself. <laughs> all right, Patrick, how do we feel about, Re- about Adam? Oh, man. What I love about... Patrick and Ricky is that they are surprisingly competent, but they are also just completely fucking full of themselves. And they get their comeuppance in the way that they're not particularly good at. Like when they they reach kind of skill sets that they're not good at, i.e. working with others, their hubris gets the better of them, as seen with the scene with the boulder. But then, yeah, at the same time with that boulder scene, like, It's Ricky basically realizing that, oh shit, there is no way this is going to work. I can't, like, it is where, where Ricky finally grows a pair. And he ultimately gives himself up because if he expected Sean or John to come to his rescue, that would mean a different Shadow Master living doll pair was going to be separated. Presumably permanently. Yes, because of how the door mechanism is. Two people on either side of the door, you have to lift up the bar. And when you go through the door, you're essentially changing places. So we have Ricky on one side and Sean and John on the other. So if Ricky lifts up the bar on his side and then John lifts it up, John would be back on the other side and Ricky will now be with Sean. Well, I was more referring to the fact that the boulder was probably going to kill the person who switched places with him. No, I get you. I'm just I'm just explaining the mechanic of the door. Just for context for everybody at home. Yeah, if, like Patrick is saying, like, if Ricky were to do that, someone would end up on the other side, and then there goes Sean and John right there. The other thing I really liked was, um, it is the, the post-debut arc. I love how Sean and John's little moment, but contrast that with Patrick and Ricky's, where Patrick is just like, Ricky, I trust you implicitly, and that's what kills the influence of Lord Grandfather's coffee. Yeah. Because, okay, we have the soot coffee is coffee imbued with soot. Don't know where, presumably, is Lord Grandfather. And what it does is if living dolls drink it, they're mind-controlled, basically, to the point where they become absolutely loyal to the Shadow's house. So, the end of the debut arc... The reception party for the new kids who debuted. The living dolls drink coffee, and then they just become mindless zombies loyal to Shadow's house. So gradually, every single one of those pairs helps their living doll break out of that mind control in order to get their their true living doll back. To which, as a side note, fucking Ricky and Lou broke out of that real quick <laughs> compared to Milico and Sean. <laughs> Sean had to get his ass beat for that one. <laughs> So it's John, why wouldn't he do that? (laughs) But still. That's the John way. Punching things until it's good. (laughs) Um, yeah, these motherfuckers. (laughs) So I'm getting a little bit more acquainted with Adam because I've seen Tokyo Avengers, I've seen Jujutsu Kaisen, and I actually watched uh, Saints Magic Power is Omnipotent. So I'm getting a better handle on Adam MacArthur as an actor, and he keeps surprising me. With Ricky and Patrick... 
The character arc for these two is very interesting, especially for Ricky because we get to have Ricky more than we do Patrick. Like you guys already said, they're little fucking shit gremlins only looking out for themselves and trying to be the best and kiss ass and all this fun stuff. That part's great. I think what I'm going to focus more on, though, and what I really liked is the shift in their character. I think a couple of fun moments for them, for Adam, with each of those performances. With Ricky, I think one of my favorite parts is his encounter with Sean and John and being Indiana Jones. Um, which is great because Ricky's starting to, like, let down his walls and realize, fuck, I actually need help. But I also want to point out his scenes with Lou. Because the two of them are working together and Rick, Ricky initially intends on using Lou to his advantage in order to find Master Patrick in order to get his ass out of there. And the second that she becomes no longer useful, he probably would have tossed her aside, right? But the more they're together and the more they interact with each other, that's the start of where he realizes that sometimes he can't do shit by himself. It is also made very clear by Ricky that Patrick is very useless. <laughs> And Patrick can't do shit for himself, hence what I said earlier about Ricky being the one with the main brain cell between the two. So the part that I feel like really kicks that into gear a bit is when Lou accidentally falls out of the maze and Ricky's like panicking. He doesn't know what to do and he's worried. But then Lou magically appears and she's fine. And an interesting interaction occurs where it's like, okay... I don't know if I want to ship Ricky and Lou or like, I don't know what's happening because Lou's concerned that she um, got hurt and she damaged like her face because that's one of the rules of this whole debut because that means that doesn't make them perfect for their master like because they are their faces. So Lou gets very close to Ricky and is like, do I have any scratches? Am I good? And Ricky's just like, uh, you're fine. I can't tell. I can't tell if you're this close. Also, I'm blushing. Hi. Hi. You're very close right now. But um, I think that kind of sets into motion for Ricky, at least. Him actually, like, being a bit more chill with the others. <laughs> and, like, actually working with them and trusting a bit more. Patrick's is very interesting. The scene I really want to talk about with Patrick is his interaction with Emilico. Patrick is trapped in this box. He's scared out of his mind because he doesn't know what the fuck is happening. And he doesn't know what to do. Again, Patrick is very stupid. <laughs> and he can't do shit. But then Emilico and Rum manage to find him. And Emilico talks to Patrick. Make sure he's fine. She was ready to free him. And Patrick's like, nope, that's Ricky's job. Please don't do that. And she was compliant. But she was also very kind and positive. And she's like, I'm positive Ricky will come for you. You mean so much to him based on how he talks about you. She gives him, like, an orange to snack on. She gives him a daffodil just to hang on to. And This flight's going to be long and there's no in-flight entertainment. May I offer you an orange in these trying times? <laughs> Basically. And I think that's the point where Patrick starts to shift too. Where he's starting to be more open and trusting of everybody else. And then when Emilico is kidnapped, Patrick is more open to be helpful. Mostly because Ricky's under the soot coffee influence at this stage. And so... It's really great and interesting. While Adam is very did phenomenally with the shit asshole gremlin parts of Ricky and Patrick, the character progression and just the willingness to open up and be more trusting of these other people. Because at this stage, these four shadow masters and their living dolls are a cohesive unit and it works very well together. And the beginning of like the trusting nature of Ricky and Patrick, I think is portrayed very, very well by Adam, and I really, really like it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. The reason why I'm here 
<laughs> to talk about Jordan Dash Cruz and Sean and John. Let's be real. Oh boy. Oh man. Where do we want to start with Sean and John? Ham. <laughs> oh, I love Sean and John. I love Jordan. I love Jordan and Sean and John. What is there to say about Jordan Dash Cruz and his portrayal of Sean and John? It's amazing. Ham. Ham. John is ham. Sean, not so much. <laughs> I don't even think, like, John is hammy. Right. No, I I honestly think outside of our two lead characters that Jordan was the best performance in the show. Oh, 100%. Out of all of the other kids, he is the best of the other kids. The fact that he made Sean and John sound so wildly different, because I think outside of Emilico and Kate, they are the most different people. Sean's personality is so very much reserved and observant. And he is the guy that is think first, action second, where John is punch first, question second. Like, so much the fact that John was willing to take on a giant boulder for Ricky, even though that would have hurt him. And we don't know how injury affects the shadows. Because we never see a shadow get injured. They're more preoccupied with their dolls never being injured. Oh, I should mention, since we're talking about the boulder, I never brought this up. John's power is much more of the physical. Like, he has super strength of some sort. Yeah, pretty much. He, he go boom. But the thing that I really like about Jordan's performance is how much he is able to get across... Sean's insecurity and John's way of bringing Sean out of it. Because Sean's biggest cheerleader is not Emilico, it is Sean. Yep. Yeah. It is John. John is willing to wear glasses for Sean, even though a shadow would never need them. Yeah, traditionally, the living doll has to match the master. Yeah, and Sean is the one who says no. And I just love Jordan's delivery of... We were trying to compromise. Yeah. And I love the fact that after you find out the coffee brainwashes people in this show, their way, instead of doing the way Emilico and Kate does, where Kate literally could have just explained this to John, but John's an idiot. John's baby himbo. Uh, and as you know, all himbos are pure of heart, dumb, and strong. So John is a baby himbo. <laughs> uh they just start smacking each other like the Pikachus in Pokemon the first movie. Yeah. Just like Amulico is is ash turned to stone, and they're just two Pikachus smacking each other. Oh my god, I hate that comparison, but you're right. I'm fucking right. It's just like watching two it's like watching the Pikachu smack. But to me, I think the thing that really defined the performance of John so much is when he gets captured. <laughs> As imitating a veiled doll because he yells. Because he talks and veiled dolls don't talk. Because he's like, oh no, I'll go look for the intruder! Run away! I had the worst thought. I'm like, oh my god, he's he's Durpleton. John is just Durpleton. Similar, similar to Ricky having the brain cell between him and Patrick, Sean has the brain cell between him and John. <laughs> John never had the brain cell to begin with. Exactly. Like, Ricky and Patrick might share it. Sean just took it. <laughs> John never had it. John was never blessed with the power of brain cell. But it's okay. Jordan's performance of Sean feels like that big brother type. And that's why I think I enjoyed it was it very much sounded like the kid who has to be mature first. Because he's smart, but he can't see very well. So he has to compensate by using other things. And because of that, you can sense that there's a bit of an inferiority complex when it comes to Sean, as opposed to Ricky. 
but he's also got a good enough heart that he was willing to defend Emilico without being pushed to. So I kind of like the very brotherly aspect that he has. It's very precious. Also, as a side note, for some fucking reason, John's in love with Kate. Yeah. He saw her one day and he was just like, I have to marry her. I must marry her. <laughs> John is a goober. <laughs> All right. What are we thinking, boys? What does he keep saying? Da da da. Ba boom! <laughs> he's so proud of blowing up that box. He locked him in a wood box and he blew it up and he's so proud of himself. He's so proud of himself. Jordan is just such a goddamn delight. He's just so. He's so big. John's not big because they're children, but he's so big. He's just really funny and. It, it, it's funny to me because, like, I think uh, Ricky and Patrick are kind of the two closest in terms of personality, but I do like that the way Jordan plays Sean and John is, like, if I didn't know what the shtick of this was and you didn't show me the character designs and you played me a scene between them, I'd be like, oh, these are brothers of some sort. Yes, these are, like... Yeah, that's the kind of relationship they have. Close relatives, really tight relationship. One of them's a little more mature and put together with the other, and he wants to make sure his brother's okay. Like, that's very much the vibe. Down to, as you're saying, like, the face is supposed to match the shadow, but John is like, aha, I'm wearing glasses. Now you can wear glasses, see? That will solve all of our problems. That's not how That's not how the game is played, sir. You can't do that. And it's like, well, that's stupid. That should be how the game is played. John's like, I don't care. I will make the rules. What was it? He wants to be king of Shadow's house? He wants to be king of the tippy top. Look, he could probably do a better job than the people currently in charge, let's be real here. <laughs> it's true. He's so nice. He's so nice and he doesn't have to be. And it's just, it's very sweet. He's a big lux. The heart of gold. Somehow. He does a good job playing Sean, too. I like Sean's, like, cool, sort of, like, I'm going to be thoughtful and calculating. But, like, John's just so fun. So. <laughs> oh, Lord. Patrick. How do we feel about Jordan? Ham. <laughs> but as a more fleshed out, I like John's sort of bombasticness. He has enough confidence for both him and Sean. Meanwhile, Sean is a little more quiet, a little more reserved. But at the same time, he has sort of the competence for him and John. So, to me, they are the most complete pair of the, um, the debut group, because they complement each other so well. And, god, Jordan playing him is just an absolute treat. He gets Sean's sort of reserved but hyper-competentness, and then John's, not quite so much, but at the same time, he has sort of the character to compensate. He has the, the charisma, the chutzpah. Like, everything in front of him is just... He can get through it. I think for a lot of the the debut groups, the moments that stick out for me most, it's the post-debut arc. Yeah. And just John going full pugilist mode against Sean to snap him out of, out of the influence of the coffee. Apparently they fought for a long time that the sun started setting. <laughs> like, I got vibes of the, um, the end scene from Porco Rosso. Where it's Porco Rosso and Don Curtis just, they have shot their planes to shreds, crashed them on the ground, and then they just go at each other, put up your Duke's pugilist style. It's beautiful. And then, yeah, 
John sort of developing a crush on um, on Kate. Like, I thought that was kind of cute. And I meant to bring this up when we were talking about Ricky and Patrick, but did you guys get that same vibe with Ricky and Lou? Yes. I mentioned earlier that um, I wasn't sure if I, I wanted to ship these two or what was happening. Yeah. Okay, because it definitely felt that way to me, which I... It makes for some really interesting dynamics that I hope kind of get fleshed out in the second season. For sure, especially considering during the first part of the debut arc when they're all together, Louise and Patrick are trying to one-up each other compared to everybody else. Right. Um, but yeah, Jordan Dash Cruz in this is a delight, and I hope he gets more, if not lead, um, like secondary protagonist parts, because he's just great. If I recall correctly, um, he's one of the people Caitlin Glass kind of scouted through the theater scene. And you can kind of tell. Oh, interesting. Because I think it was him and Christopher Lewin Ramirez. And if Caitlin Glass is listening to this episode, which she typically does, and I'm wrong, feel free to correct me. Oh, if anyone's going to correct, it's going to be Jordan. Jordan did listen to the Millionaire Detective episode. So I know for a fact if he gets his hands on this, hi, Jordan. Oh, <laughs> um, well, no. <laughs> But, um, oh my god, what has not been said about Sean and John? Um, so it's safe to say that Steph has her favorite performance of the show with uh, Jordan. Okay, I love Sean's reserved, observant, reserved nature. He is a smart individual. For the most part, he's the one we see as the smartest guy in the room. Until you get to rum, like getting more confidence and everything. But I also love how Jordan portrays Sean's slight inferiority, like everybody's saying. Because he wants to do right by Master John and be of service to him. He has a big heart and he cares about everybody else. Again, we go back to the whole glasses thing where John's like, Hey, I have a pair of glasses too. Now everyone will be fine with it. And Sean's like, no. And John's just like, but I'm trying to help you. But... John is what I really love among this pair because John gives zero fucks. <laughs> Again, we said he will like act now and ask questions later. <laughs> Sean will ask the questions and think methodically. John is considering his Sith powers, he's all brawn, no brain kind of deal. <laughs> and it's very fun. It's very more energetic and out there and open. And it's, it's such a fun, delightful performance. But what I love the most is how they interact with each other in their relationship. Was it Amon, I think, describe them as like brothers. That is 100% the relationship that Sean and John have with each other. And I think Jordan portrays that very, very well. Jordan, I think, is the performance that is among the most distinct and separating. Similar to Marissa as Lou and Louise. But at the end of the day, they are similar in terms of how big their hearts are. And I think that's what keeps them connected and also how much they care for each other. So Sean and John are my favorite, my favorite Shadow Master and Living Doll pair of the show. And it's just a lot of fun. So much fun. The last time I got to talk about Jordan Dash Cruz was with Millionaire Detective. And he was great in that. But And I think I recall among the group, there was some consensus of it being a little iffy at points, but I love this. <laughs> this is amazing, and I, I like this, I want more of this, I want to see Jordan in more things. Put him in more things. God damn it. <laughs> 
Any other thoughts about Jordan Dash Cruz or Adam MacArthur before we move on to our last pair? I think we're good. All right, let's see what we can do about cranking this out. So we have Emilico and Mistress Kate. Emilico is described in the show and nicknamed Miss Sunshine, and that is the best description that you can give Emilico. She is sunshine and rainbows and positivity to the max. Mistress Kate is her shadow master. She's a bit more reserved, quiet, more methodical, and she's very much a curious individual. And she's very much interested in not only the goings-ons in Shadow's house, but the mysteries and all this interesting stuff about Shadow's house. And she knows something's off, and she wants to find out what it is. So, playing these two characters. As Emilico, we have Danny Chambers, who is voice characters such as Chise Hattori in Ancient Magus Bride, Hina Sato in The Day I Became a God, and Kokoro Hasegawa in Smile on the Runway. As for Kate, our assistant ADR director, Emmy Lowe, is portraying Kate. She has voiced characters such as Hototo in Apare Ranman, Rena Ryuga in Higurashi Go, and Shanghai in Sunny Boy. So, I like it. <laughs> Danny is full of sunshine and rainbows. God, it's so much positive energy. It's so precious. Emilico... Okay, Emilico is straight positivity, and she sometimes is not the smartest one in the room. <laughs> Let's be real. Emilico isn't that smart in the logical sense, but she's smart in the observational sense, similar to Sean, but also in whatever makes her happy. <laughs> whatever makes her happy, and somehow it magically works out for her. <laughs> like, the debut arc... At the beginning of the labyrinth that set up, Edward tells the kids, hey, you can pick one item that is over here for your use. While everybody else picks very logical stuff, like Sean takes a magnifying glass, uh, Ricky takes a soot suit, the shears go to Lou, uh, a lantern is what Rum takes, Emilico takes a cart. <laughs> she was so happy to get that cart, and it was the most illogical thing that she could have taken, but it worked out, and she could, she was very useful for her. In the long run, she turned the handle into a makeshift broom. She collected flowers and oranges, and in the end, when she saved Kate, that cart was a cushion and a pillow when they fell off that cage. It worked out! <laughs> it was so, it was very amusing. But no, Danny is such a fun, bright, emanating this positive energy, and it's so much fun, and I love it. And then you have Kate, who's... I haven't heard Emmy like this yet, honestly. Much more quiet, a bit more quiet in, like, a hushed way. It's not Arena from Higurashi Go, I'm gonna tell you that right now. Her Rena in Higurashi is just sickly sweet and very creepy, but that's also Rena's character, period. But her here, it's much more quiet, more methodical, a bit more reserved. But Kate's personality grows along with the show as well, where she really comes to love Emilico. She named Emilico Emilico because she, she wanted her to be her own person. She wanted to give Emilico a name that is different from Kate, but also gives it a fun twist. It was originally... The character of a book that she read, the name was Emily, but she wanted to do Emily with a twist, hence Emilico. So, 
Emmy is probably among the most open-minded of all of the Shadow Masters, and I think Emmy portrays that very, very well. But their relationship between Emmy's Kate and Danny's Emilico, I think, is very well done. Again, this goes back to episode one and how the relationship starts out, again, with Emily Neves' writing on that one particularly. But I think with us spending time that first episode with both Emilico and Kate, it establishes that relationship and it only just grows and blossoms and they do have a very loving and caring relationship for each other. It's like, if Sean and John have a relationship of brothers, you could say that Emilico and Kate have the relationship of sisters. That's how the feeling I get with that. And it's just such a fun dynamic and relationship between these two characters and with these two actresses, and I enjoy it immensely. I absolutely love Emmy and Danny as Amilico and Kate. I think that they are a perfect match for each other in terms of vocals. They sound alike while not being. Obviously, they are not the same people. Danny is an absolute joy as Amilico, who is this very upbeat and happy character. And I remember for a long time, we were like, man, I really want Danny to play upbeat and happy characters because she was... Back when she was first starting, she probably would have been Kate if this had come out a couple years ago. Yeah, that's true. She probably would have. I think the thing I like about her most is that there is such a genuine earnestness in everything that Emilico does that comes through Danny's voice. And that genuine earnestness is what propels the, the story forward. Instead of being the status quo, Emilico's resourcefulness and her observation skills and her genuine kindness is what causes change in the society that is ruled by creatures who just want to pledge fealty to a being they barely even understand. They've been brainwashed to do so, and she's cleaning that away. And I think the thing that really works is how well Emmy's lower-key performance as Kate bounces off of that. While Kate has her moments, she is usually a lot more low-key in that calm, reserved anger as opposed to big outburst anger like Jordan as John. But again, the thing I genuinely enjoy the most about the balance of their performance, and especially with Emmy as Kate, I love the doubt she put in Kate's voice. Because Kate always thinks of the worst happening, while Amelika always thinks of the best. And that moment of realization where she realizes that Amelika won't fail because of Amelika, Emilico's going to fail because she doesn't believe in her. In that scene where they dance together and she's just very quietly leading her, like, don't worry, just believe in me. It hits so well. And that's why I love the last two episodes where it's more focused on Kate doing things and Kate being the one in control. And they are just a perfect pair for each other. They are in harmony with each other. And neither one overshadows the other in terms of performance. So I very much agree with you guys that um, Danny Chambers absolutely nails it as sort of the ray of sunshine in Milico. She's an absolute delight here. What I really like about it is um, she doesn't seem quite as head smart as some of her debut contemporaries, but she more than makes up for that in that she has resourcefulness for days. What I absolutely love about the character is that resourcefulness rubs off on the other living dolls. Yeah. Yeah, the reason why the living dolls and even the shadows start changing their opinions and their mindsets is mostly because of Amilico. Yeah. <laughs> Our Amilico. 
<laughs> Communism is coming to the Shadows house. <laughs> Down with the proletariat shadows. Anyway, one thing I also really like about Emilo's Kate, and it kind of ties into a gripe I have with the show in general... Emmy plays Kate with the idea that she has a mission to accomplish. Uh, now, that ties into a gripe I have with the show itself. I'll go into a little bit more of it in Final Thoughts, but um, I feel like the final arc was a little too compact. That's probably because it's anime original. Okay, because I also feel like a lot of the big reveals that happened in that ending came too quickly and were not as properly foreshadowed in the episodes that came before it. But other than that, through the whole thing, Emmy definitely plays Kate as somebody, even if you don't quite understand it, you can tell she knows something else is going on. Yeah, because she's the one who discovers who the living dolls actually are. And she tells them, yeah, they're human beings from a little village not far from here. Yeah. Like, they're not actually, like, living dolls created for us. They are human children. So she has discovered that fact. And now the big question is, how does she know this? How does she know a lot of things? Right. How does she know what she knows, and how did she formulate this plan that she is seemingly enacting to sort of bring down Lord Grandfather? But yeah, that determination also plays really well into that final arc. Like, I think the standouts... For Emilico, it is sort of when she's exploring the Shadow's house to find the origin of, of the soot, um, where she's also sort of laying out the idea she has that, oh yeah, instead of trying to find the worst in a situation, I try to find the best. Ooh, and you know what? Her speech with Rum, to that note, where she talks about, oh yeah, instead of thinking she doesn't like you, oh, maybe she's just too shy, maybe... Yeah... Maybe she likes to clean, and that's why her room is so clean. You don't get to do much. Maybe she loves you so much that she doesn't worry as much as you think. Right. Yeah. Like, I thought that was really beautiful. And then for Kate, I want to say it's in that last episode as she's making her escape. Especially when she sprouts the wings and tries to fly away. And she's constantly apologizing to Emilico that she's just not strong enough. And yet she makes it. And Emilico is just like, please stay still. Yep. Danny and Emmy just play off each other so well. So I, I absolutely have to... I want to move this along because we've been at this... For a while. Moving on. Amon, how do you feel about Danny and Emmy? I agree. Okay. Yeah, Emmy's really good as Kate. I like that she gets across her nervousness and vulnerabilities, but also her strengths. And I like how Danny is able to make Emilico such a ball of sunshine without having her come off as too, like, saccharine or annoying. So, thumbs up. I don't have anything particularly to add at this point, frankly. Okay. Long as you're sure. Are there any other thoughts about Danny and Emmy before we move on to final thoughts? I'm good. Alright. Class is almost over on how to become the perfect living doll. So, let's go into our final thoughts on Shadow's house and see what everybody's learned today. Let's actually start with Amon. What are your final thoughts on the dub of Shadow's House? It was great. Yay! Great dub. <laughs> good, good, good cast, good strong cast, good direction, good writing. I think it's a really solid, interesting show. I'm glad this exists. I'm glad it apparently did well enough to get another season, which is not really a guarantee these days. Yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, watch it, and we'll tell you how in, like, like five minutes, so go do that. <laughs> All right, Megan. 
Uh, yeah, I agree. I'm very glad I watched this. I'm glad I watched it uh, before the second season came out. I'm very excited to read the manga, which is going to be coming out from Yen Press. I really think that this dub is really good. I think it's definitely worth the watch if you were curious about the show. I mean, I have some like minor criticisms, but overall it was very good. Okay. Patrick, what are your final thoughts? So, minor nitpicking on the ending aside, I very much like the show. I very much recommend the Honestly, sub or dub on this one, you can't go wrong. I've actually seen about half the show subtitled. You can't go wrong with either of your choices. But if you do want to stick with the dub, it is absolutely primo. This one has kind of ruined where my dubbies stood. Oh no! <laughs> I've had to rethink a lot of things since I finished it. So, um, oopsie. Oops-a-doodle. But more on that probably in the next couple of months. The ensemble is an absolute delight. There are a bunch of standout performances in the form of Danny, Emmy, Chris Smith, and Jordan Dash Cruz. And it is just, this was just absolutely fun. Uh, and I cannot wait for season two to drop. So yeah, when this episode ends, go ahead and turn YouTube off and head on over to give it a checkout. Heck yeah. I've actually been curious about Shadow's House for a while, ever since they announced it. Because when I read the summary, I'm like, this sounds like my brand of shit. <laughs> I mean, we are Team Shiki, after all. I was actually the one who suggested that this be the crew for the episode, back when the show was announced. Yeah, you were. <laughs> and I'm like, this is my brand of shit. Like, I have a weird way of, like, when shows come out, I'm like, yeah, this is for this person. Yep, this is catered for me. <laughs> like we, oh god, when we did, it'll be out by the time this this episode happens. Bungo and Alchemist. <laughs> so Bungo and Alchemist is a show that's catered to Megan. This is catered to Steph. <laughs> that was a show made for Megan and only Megan. By the way, she had no idea that this was going to be her thing. I watched the first episode and said, Steph, shut the fuck up and watch Shadow's House. No, I, I had a suspicion. I just hadn't had the chance to get to it at that point. And then you're like, Steph, you have to. And I'm like, okay, I will. And then I'm like, yep. <laughs> And it's also sort of in the way that a certain ongoing dub is exactly my jam. So this is my kind of thing, like a like a horror mystery kind of thing. But also the gothic style and the Victorian aesthetic to it is just mm, love it. Nice touch. Um, the dub of this show is so much fun. It pulls together a very interesting cast of characters that you either love or you fucking hate. Or you're Ricky and Patrick, and you hate them, but now you're kind of liking them a bit. <laughs> and the performances each reflect that, and it's a very interesting vocal mix and dynamic between not just the actors with each other, but the actors amongst themselves playing against themselves. So it's a fun, interesting challenge, and I think it was handled very well and almost basically seamlessly. There are some fun, outstanding performances in the show. And overall, it's a really good show. Please go watch it if you have the chance. It's definitely among one of my favorites from last year, and I'm very excited for season two. Now, if you are curious, and if we have convinced you enough to go and take a look at Shadow's House, you can currently watch the first season of Shadow's House over on Funimation. At the time of this recording, no home video release has been announced for the show. Apparently Shadow's House did do really well enough for a season two to happen, which I'm very excited about. Very excited to see what happens next with Kate and Emilico and the other kids. And Megan has mentioned this as well. The manga was actually recently licensed by Yen Press. 
However, at the time of this recording, there has been no announcement of a release date. Uh, if you're interested in anything that we here at Dub Talk do, if you're on YouTube watching us, you can subscribe to our channel here. If you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podbean, you can follow us over there for our audio feeds. In terms of social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Dubtalk Podcast. We have a Twitch at Dubtalk Podcast as well. Uh, Instagram and Tumblr are basically dead, but hey. And if you really want to support us even further, we have a Ko-fi account where you can send us one-time donations if you are so inclined. We have our Patreon where you can subscribe to us there and you can give us money every month. Uh, and we have fun little tiers, which I'm hoping we can expand upon in the near future. But for now, we have to give our thank yous to our wonderful patrons. At our $5 tier, we have Megan's mom and dad. Hi, Megan's mom and dad. Hi, mom. <laughs> we have Michelle Travis. We have Nico Robin, but with Yowie Hands, Sue Tweet, and Victor Mayborda. And at our $10 tier, we have Carly Lestikow, Crimson Echidna, Jacob Wilson, Jared Hawkins, Julia W., Marissa Lenti, and Otaku Anthony. Thank you guys for your continued support. As for the four of us idiots, my name is Stephanie. I'm also sometimes known as Lilac. You can follow me on Twitter at Lilac Anime Review with review being spelled R-E-V-U-E. I do have a blog, Life and Times of Talk WordPress.com that is very much out of date. <laughs> I need to fix that. I also am utilizing the Dub Talk Twitch where you can see me streaming at the time of this recording Animal Crossing one to two days a week and alongside Andrew on Sunday nights with currently we're playing I the Somnium Files. Megan, you can follow her on Twitter at QueenArror2. Hi. She shit posts. You can sometimes find her chilling over on some a few different discords, like the Funimation Discord, the R Anime Dubs Discord, just chilling and hanging out. You can also, if you're interested in seeing her play some video games, uh, she typically streams on the Dubtalk Twitch right now as of, as of recording this. On Wednesday nights, she's going through Fire Emblem Three Houses. The Blue Lions are out specifically right now. Yeah, we're still doing that. Uh, as of the time of this recording, we're doing Megan's least favorite part of the game. Ah, uh, yes, sad face. Um, as for Patrick, you can follow him on Twitter at Roots of Justice. You have a blog that's been collecting dust just like me, I think. Yeah, I've got some ideas for an article to write or two, so hopefully that will be the kick in the pants for me to finally do something with it. We're in the works. But you can also hang out with him on the Dub Talk Twitch on Saturdays. Um, right now, he actually just started playing the Diagon Rampa franchise. And I have no intention of stopping by the time this ends up coming out. Like, I... You'll probably still be either on the tail end of the first game or maybe starting the second one. Who knows? Oh, and that's right. This is an episode I am in. So now it's time. I forgot you're doing a new thing, too. It is time for Patrick's Cool Thing of the Day, where I tell you about a cool thing that I'm really interested in. So, I had known about this before, um, Amon had streamed a couple episodes on the Discord for New Year's Eve, but this was already kind of something I was watching. It is a little show called Ultra Q. So, imagine the Twilight Zone, but done by the guy who would later go on to produce such shows as, like, Ultraman and Gridman the Hyper Agent. Okay. It is basically the Twilight Zone with Godzilla-esque tokusatsu monsters in it. Does the first episode feature a monster that is an obviously repurposed Godzilla costume? Maybe. it does. <laughs> does the second episode include a giant monster that is a vaguely repurposed Kong costume? Maybe. What? Oh yeah, um, A.G. Tsuburaya was one of the special effects guys on the old Godzilla movies. Once he left Toho... 
to start Tsuburaya. He basically used a lot of his know-how to, to recreate a lot of that stuff for things like Ultra Q and Ultraman. It's great. Also, Ultraman is also something you should that should really be on your radar. Because it's basically like the Super Sentai Power Ranger formula. Except it's also like, it mixes in like pro wrestling moves. It's great. Okay. <laughs> you can find these on, um, on Shout TV. And I think they're also streaming them on, um, I think they're on Tubi now as well. And uh, Mill Creek puts out some really nice Blu-rays for them. And that is Patrick's cool thing of the day. Finally, we have Amon. You can follow him on Twitter at AmonDuelUS, um, where he tends to post about music and fun manga and all this kind of stuff. And he's actually streams as well in the Dub Talk Twitch. You can see him on Tuesdays. Right now, he's going through a little game called Necrobarista. It's a fun little delight about coffee and dead people. <laughs> My favorite. And of course... I can't let Amon go without giving us a dusty old song of the day, if you would be so kind. Hi, Super Train fans. <laughs> uh, do you like music? <laughs> well, good, because I don't have just one song for you today. I have two, because I was indecisive. The more pertinent one for all this is I'll Be Your Mirror by The Velvet Underground, uh, because it's lyrically, thematically on point. Sorry, The Velvet Underground and Nico. Which brings up my favorite thing to complain about, which is ever weebs refer to Nico. I do not know what anime girl they're talking about. I just think of a blonde German lady. It's very irritating. <laughs> oh my god. It's only one Nico. Damn it. Um, anyways, no, it's a very good song. You should go check it out and then listen to the rest of that album if you haven't already. My other one is basically whenever the ending hit, I only ever had one thought, which is like, it doesn't sound like it, but this reminds me a lot of Real Real by Sleigh Bells. It's, it's a sort of indie pop song. Apparently it was very big in kind of the last remnants of kind of the, the music blogosphere in like 2010 when it came out. Uh, I didn't find out about it until many years later when my girlfriend recommended it to me. Uh, but I like it because I was going to say it has the vibe of like, imagine Mean Girls, that they would cut each other. But then I was like, well, it's just Heathers. It sounds like Heathers. And that feels like the kind of vibe that Shadow House gives off. Like, children being forced to be cruel and violent to each other. I feel like this is gonna be a song that I'm gonna enjoy. You'll probably like it. Also, it's built, it's built around a Funkadelic sample, which I just find... Ooh. Oh, okay! I just find funny. It's not a very funky Funkadelic sample, it's like one of their ballads, but it's a good sample. My ears just perked. Ooh! <laughs> anyway, so go, go listen to that and increase your culture. And on that note, class is done. I hope everybody has had the opportunity to learn how to be wonderful living dolls for their masters. We should get going. We have some cleaning to do, guys. Piss off, I need my coffee. Okay, coffee first, and then let's clean this whole big mansion together. How does that sound, guys? Please, no, I don't like cleaning. Well, too fucking bad, you gotta do it. You can't make me do it, you're not my real mom. No, I'm not, but you know, the Star Bears are gonna come kick your ass. Star Bears can't touch me, I'm made of soot. <laughs> Well, I can't clean because my hammies are on fire. What was that, Mom? <laughs> Do you want to yell that into the microphone? Because I'm saying I don't want to clean anything. What? You, it's on your chore list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to clean this house. You're not. Oh, shit. You, I am you're your half mom. my real mom. I am your real mom. <laughs> Do you want to yell that louder for the recording? <laughs> Steph's laughing her ass off right now. I'm yeah. your only mom. <laughs> <laughs> yes! There we go. 
I'll clean for that, Mom. And on that note, we have to say goodnight. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to us at Otaku on, my friends. Otaku on the Daba. Rock over Boston, rock on Chicago. Hi, no night, you card, card, give a card, I, no night.